Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're working our way through films that rage against the machine. Today, we're talking about the 1967 film Bonnie and Clyde, in which we explore the story of two people who seem to have some issues with authority. I'm your host, and I wouldn't have had to rob this bank if they'd just offered me a toaster when I opened an account. My co-host is Guy, whose only life goal was being a gas station attendant, but fate had other plans for him, and he tragically ended up as a rogue podcaster. Yeah, stay in school, kids. Hello, Guy. <laughs> Hello, Ron. And our guest today is Editor-in-Chief of Reason Magazine, Catherine Mangy Ward. Hello, Catherine. Hi, folks. How's it going? Uh, real good. So, Catherine, we gave you, you know, a list of all these films that we're, we're looking at, and you chose this one. What made you choose this one? So, to be honest, it was quite a silly reason, which is that for, for reasons that I can't now fully reconstruct, <laughs> when I was in, I want to say maybe ninth grade, my best friend and I went as Bonnie and Clyde for Halloween. <laughs> and where we picked up the idea that this was like an appropriate costume or... <laughs> You know, I we must have seen some images from this movie because every single shot of this movie exudes the kind of dangerous glamour that a ninth grader would absolutely fall for <laughs> without appreciating any of the sub or super text. Yeah. Uh, so we were just like unironic Bonnie and Clyde. And there is a photo of me somewhere wearing like a really horrific blonde wig and holding a super soaker <laughs> in my body drag. So yeah, I have I had this sort of little biographical detail of at some point thinking that the glamour and kind of um, excitement of Bonnie and Clyde were appealing, but I, I had very little memory actually of the film itself. Hmm. Uh, but the other thing I knew about was Pauline Kael's New Yorker review of Bonnie and Clyde, hmm. which is uh, one of the great pieces as far as I'm concerned, and I think kind of canonically of film criticism it's relatively early in her career and it's it's just really good so uh some of what we talk about here will just be me channeling pauline kale uh, uh, and i right. think there's like really no one better to crim from so i'm not even not even gonna be embarrassed about it okay <laughs> okay now you know you've made it known that you're a bit of an anarchist and i'm wondering if there's some uh, anarchy in this film that warms your heart <laughs> So I will say, you know, maybe this is getting in too deep too quickly, but as a, you know, I'm, I am 41 now and as a grown person with responsibilities, this movie, rewatching it, it's just shocking. The mm. nihilism and <laughs> stupidity of this movie. And I do know that there is a romance that there is a romance to kind of living a life or living in a world where you just think like kind of nothing matters. Hmm. But I I found it sad. I found mm -hmm. it sort of profoundly depressing in a way that, you know, is so out of sync with the public romantic notions of Bonnie and Clyde. Right? Like mm -hmm. we, are, we are still the kind of depression era newspaper reading public as far as their reputation is concerned, mm -hmm. I think, culturally. And that's not either the reality nor is it what's being depicted in that film. Mm -hmm. I had sort of, uh, you know, it was one of those moments where you sort of have two images and they're, and they're both competing <laughs> for focus. And then, and then it kind of resolved for me into 
an intellectual understanding of the romance, but a visceral feeling of kind of sadness and despair. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they really get up to some bad stuff in the movie. I mean, uh, I can't criticize too much since I've played just about every Grand Theft Auto game out there. (laughs) But uh, but, uh, yeah, they're not exactly Rome. No, and not only that, right? Like, I don't, I'm perfectly happy for a morally gray or even dark protagonist. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I was sort of not troubled by the morality play of it, but, you know, my version of anarchism is one that's like very overthought Mm. and very kind of logistical. And this was the other kind, right? Like this was, this is just the like sense of kind of personal lawlessness, the idea that you owe no one anything, that we are not bound to each other by things. Mm. So in that sense, I would say, you know, this was in, in many ways anathema to my, to my anarchism. Like if we, yeah. we owe anyone anything, it's like the bank for our house, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I had this, I, I, I did have this sense of like, I can see why people who rage against the machine, people who kind of want to fight the man, why this movie calls out to them. But also mm. the, the clear lesson is like, it's not going to work. Like the man <laughs> will win. But so what would you say to, I mean, I feel like most people's view of anarchism would be that this is what it is. And you're saying it's the opposite of what you believe. So uh, that's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, I've always said like uh, being an anarchist is both the least interesting and the lamest thing about me because (laughs) I think people hope that, you know, as an anarchist, you've got kind of a Molotov cocktail in your purse and you're just ready for anything. And I'm, you know, I'm very much of the school that like anarchism is a policy stance, right? Like how can the state do less because the state screws up everything it does <laughs> is, you know, and I'm very much a gradualist. You know, I, I, one of my jokes is like, I do want to see the world burn, but I want it to be one of those controlled burns that <laughs> firefighters do. <laughs> Where they like dig a trench around what needs to burn so that no one gets hurt. <laughs> and this this movie is the opposite of that, right? This movie is literally just like it's a dry month in California and I am throwing a match. <laughs> and that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That's not a good idea. Like <laughs> I don't know what else to say. So yes, I think you are right that this is what people dream of and fear when they think about anarchy, when they think about bucking authority at kind of the deepest level. And it's certainly not what I mean by mm. anarchy. Oh yeah. I think, um, you know, I've, I've meant to read more about anarchism. I know there's different flavors. There's the anarcho-capitalism, anarcho-socialism, and you know, this, that, and the other thing, but I haven't really read a lot about it. I've read a lot of libertarian works over the years, but not, uh, not so much, you know, genuine anarchism, but you know, the, the, the one problem, not having read much about it, the one problem that I can foresee needing some addressing is that whenever there's a power vacuum, you know, you're going to get somebody who wants to be the warlord and then do stuff, you know, take stuff over for themselves. So um, I'm not saying that it's not feasible. I just don't know enough about it to talk about it intelligently. But uh, it's definitely a subject I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this this movie even suggests that, right? Like almost all movies about crime are uh, at some level 
movies about the state in you know, any any mm-hmm. organized crime. It's a movie about the state. It's a movie about where the state came from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mo- governments are just mafias in you know that in less less attractive suits. Oh, like it's, yeah. you know, these guys obviously the the Barrow Gang is not too terribly much of a gang in the end. They're just kind of a bunch of idiots, but. <laughs> But I, you know, I do think that this fear of anarchy and sort of social disorder being synonyms makes that critique totally valid. If there is, if there is disorder, someone will come impose order. Right. But I think, you know, my, my variant, which is anarcho-capitalism, I would say, I love order. I love rules. What I don't like is coercion. Right. And so, you know, how can we have maximum order with minimum coercion is like one way to think about my goals and my political philosophy. Yeah. And this movie is like a, it's set in a moment when people feel like the rules don't apply anymore because it's not working. Mm. Right. They're feeling they're, they're, they're feeling coerced by the state, but the state is not delivering on the implicit bargain of state coercion, which is like, but at least your property (laughs) is yours. At least there is peace. Mm. You know, at least you know that you're not going to, have marauders come in the night and so it's it's sort of the worst of all worlds it's this very dark moment i think for trust and institutions Mm -hmm. and of course it's set in one period and then this film is you know is is filmed in another period which is there are many parallels to be made there maybe we've had some recent experience with government coercion that didn't work (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean always baby but uh, but notably lately Yeah. yeah So some context for this film, Warren Beatty not only starred in it, but he produced it. He really believed in the material and it was considered one of the first new Hollywood films. So, you know, different kind of editing and yeah. And and one thing I thought was interesting is a lot of the films at that time, you started to see this very naturalistic acting, right? And this, this is not exactly that it has that, but it's also a very stylistic acting. So it's sort of a combination of those and the studio did not believe in the film so even though they made it for warren Beatty, they refused to support it they refused to advertise it they refused to release it wide they were just releasing in small markets but it was doing so well (laughs) everywhere they released it they were eventually forced to release it wide and it became one of their most profitable films ever so kind of interesting how you know (laughs) the suits you know just didn't believe in it but it actually was uh, uh, something that really worked for people yeah you know i enjoyed it i mean uh i can see how it did a good good box office but it's basically it's almost a magazine spread not a movie right <laughs> it's uh, faye dunaway is so beautiful and so messy and so and like she's not they don't even pretend to style her period appropriate mm, yeah. right i mean she looks like the 60s just a hundred percent looks like the 60s this is one of my like horrible pedantries it's like i really get bothered by films that are claiming to be period and then all right and as far as i can tell like they got the cars right like, the dresses, <laughs> you know the dresses are so wrong that i just spent <laughs> half the movie being like what even underwear is she supposed to be wearing under that like don't uh. tell me but that's not a, you know. So I, had some... I, did, I didn't watch it with my girlfriend. My girlfriend is a clothing historian and creator, and Ooh. and then I wouldn't have even been able to watch the movie. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I mean, I I I know only kind of an amateur's level of knowledge, and I think at some point you just appreciate it as an artistic decision, right? Like they just said, we're going to yeah. do her as a '60s bombshell, and that's what we're going to do. 
But I think the reason this movie did well at the box office, I got to imagine in part, is just because every single person who saw it went home and tried the little curl by their ear. You know, every single person who saw it went home and said, like, should I be wearing my pants higher and wider? Because it was such a vibe. It was just like such an aesthetic. And, you know, I, it's hard, hard for me to imagine to really put myself in context to understand what people were taking away in terms of the politics, but <laughs> um, except for, except for, you know, what I can glean from contemporary writing about the film. Yeah. So in the uh, fiction of our universe, a uh, guy and I have not yet seen the film. So we're now going to get in our model T and go down to the local <laughs> theater because it has air conditioning <laughs> and, uh, and watch the film. And we will be back after to talk with you. <laughs> So this is the part of the show where Guy and I walk through the movie in some detail for anyone who's never seen it or just wants a refresher on it or wants to hear us, you know, make bad jokes as we go through. If you'd rather get back to our discussion with Catherine, we understand. And this episode has bookmarks, so you can just jump to our concluding discussion with Catherine. With that, let's get into the movie. So I'll be handling part one, and the movie starts off with black and white pictures, just a series of them, one after another. You know, uh, Soil and Green actually does, they have a montage of black and white pictures, but that that sort of tells a story of, you know, overpopulation and technology and all that. And these pictures, as far as I can tell, they're just pictures of, you know, the history of the two main characters, you know, the period, time period in general. Well, and I think they're the actual photos of them, right? So you see some actual photos of Bonnie and Clyde that will be referenced later as well as just what it was like at the time, right? And I think it's it's hard for us to understand because we always think like, oh, everybody's poor and inflation, et cetera. And, you know, you go back to that time and that's when you see poverty, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't have a PlayStation and a bunch of clothes. I mean, having a shirt, <laughs> you know, was something, right? Oh, yeah. So what we think of as poverty now is very different from then, and I think it kind of made sense for them to remind you there's an interesting technique here i thought which is usually in most openings if they were doing this photograph thing you know they put the photograph up for like five or ten seconds and then go to the next one while they do the credits mm -hmm. this one will show the photograph for like one second and then fade it yeah. out and i thought about that because it was kind of weird because it makes it hard for you to see them but i realized it kind of makes you like intrigued like oh i want to wait i want to see more of that right? yeah. and it's like well that's the movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, it, uh, it does a good job of getting you interested. And then after we see some pictures, we get, a for Bonnie and Clyde both, we get just brief two or three sentence backgrounds of what they've done so far. You know, Bonnie was a waitress and Clyde ended up in prison briefly, I guess. <laughs> so then the movie proper starts and we see a, a pretty girl, uh, blonde or maybe strawberry blonde. She's naked in her bedroom we don't see anything r-rated it's all tastefully camera angles hiding stuff and so forth yeah unfortunately at the time this would have had to be a european film for us to see anything good so. <laughs> yeah this was 1967 i think for the, the the movie was made she's naked in her bedroom and this is this is faye dunaway she's gonna be bonnie and she looks frustrated she gets on the bed and pounds on the bedposts a little she kind of just stalks around the room like she's not sure what she wants to do with herself. And then we see that out by the road, or a road, we don't know its relation to the house yet, 
there's an old sedan, 20s or 30s sedan parked out there. And a man in a white Panama hat is looking it over. So this girl that we just saw, she looks out her bedroom window and she sees the man leaning in the driver's window of the car. She says, hey, boy, what are you doing with my mama's car? <laughs> and he looks up and from his point of view, there's a, uh, a naked girl standing at the window again, uh, yeah, the window frame is tastefully concealing the parts that need more concealment. <laughs> He's still interested, and the girl says, wait there. So he gets a kind of puzzled but amused look on his face. She quickly puts on a button-up dress and heads downstairs, and his excuse that he gives her is that he's been thinking about buying one of these cars. She says, bull, you ain't got money for dinner. So he tells her he has enough money for a Coke, then he invites her to walk into town with him. And she says she has to work anyway. So, yeah, I was thinking, um, and you know, we see them steal a lot of cars in this movie. And especially for a family in this area, you know, a car must have been like a year's salary or two years. I mean, I know mm -hmm. that they got cheaper with the Model T's and all that. And that was part of the big, the big change. We were, you know, back in the Western days, I mean, it was a death penalty to steal a horse because they were oh, yeah. so valuable. They needed them so much. Yep. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Cars, um, cars were, they've always been expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as they're walking into town, he guesses that she's a waitress and she doesn't confirm or deny that, but she asks what he does when he's not stealing cars. He says he's looking for employment at the moment. <laughs> and uh, before that, uh, he was in state prison for armed robbery. Bonnie says the things that turn up in the street these days. <laughs> yeah, and I think an important thing here is right from the beginning, we saw both when he was stealing the car and now he just told her, you know, two minutes after they met that he's an armed robber. And rather than being concerned or running away or anything, she's just intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So they get into town and they pass by a closed down movie theater with the barber shop next to it. When he sees that the movie theater is closed down, he asks what they do for fun around here. And again, she doesn't really have a whole big list of fun stuff. She just asks what he did for fun in prison. And his answer is that he chopped off two of his toes with an ax to get off work <laughs> detail. We see them standing around drinking pop. It looks, it's the color of Coke, but, but the bottles aren't Coke bottle shaped. Uh, they're just ordinary glass sort of. Yeah, I think uh, this would have been something that the local vendor would have just, you know, mixed up themselves, right? You just take some syrup and, and some water or some carbonated water if they were doing that at the time. Mm -hmm. It could be, yeah. It could be uh, some kind of fountain drink. I know in the South, at least some places in the South, and, and perhaps Texas is among them, any kind of soda or pop would be called, uh, referred to as Coke, just sort of generically. <laughs> so he had said right. to get a Coke earlier. Anyway. Yeah, and I grew up in an area where it was pop, mm -hmm. and then I moved to an area where it was soda, and so now I'm all mature and I say soda. And now I've moved to Cleveland and it's pop again. Yeah. So <laughs> throughout my life, they keep changing the damn name. <laughs> so. Yeah. Actually, I, I, uh, I went down to Texas once, uh, for a conference for work. It was, uh, in Austin and from my hotel room, I ordered a pizza. Then I asked if they had any pop and the guy said, are you from Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess they get a lot of Ohioans down there saying pop. 
<laughs> anyway, they're drinking their pop, and and she asks what a uh, what armed robbery is like. He says it ain't like anything. So she calls him a faker, and he very discreetly uh, he pulls out a pistol from his coat and just sort of holds it right by the side of his chest, right, right where he she can see it, but it's not too obvious to the general public. Yeah, and before he does that, I mean, also, she's really disappointed at his answer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she she clearly is excited about the idea, so when he's downplaying it, she's not interested at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Once the gun is out, she she cautiously touches the barrel, and it's um, it's a bit suggestive, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, could be. I think a little more than a little bit. <laughs> he's literally holding it in his crotch, and she's literally stroking it up and down. So. Well, I thought Take it, it for what you will. Well, as you say, sometimes a cigar is a cigar. Yeah. <laughs> so, sometimes stroking a gun is just stroking a gun. <laughs> so she says, but you wouldn't have the gumption to use it, which, uh, again, could be taken as a, a double entendre. Right. Well, yeah, which we'll, we'll see how that oh, comes yeah. into play in a bit. Yeah. But also here, she's, you know, she's egging him to do something. This is her town, and it's a really small place. She has to know everybody there. So it's, you know, it's pretty bizarre that she would be kind of encouraging him to commit an armed robbery in her own town. <laughs> well, she might get the night off work if that happens. Yeah. <laughs> he tells her, when she says he wouldn't have the gumption, he tells her to wait right there. Keep her eyes open. Then he walks across the street. And what what we see of it, it looks like a pretty small town. Now, we this is actually West Dallas, but then again, I don't know if West Dallas is, you know, like there's a place out here called East Canton that is actually pretty well separated from Canton itself. So, hey. so this could be actually what it looks like, a pretty small town. And, uh, and it's not a thriving small town either, because mm-hmm. it could seem better. There's not a lot of people. It's all, it all feels very much of that whole Dust Bowl thing, right? Yeah. Just everything is, yeah. Yeah. So he walks into the grocery store, and very soon, less than a minute later, maybe even less than a half minute later, he comes out with a handful of cash. The cashier comes out after him, but he fires a warning shot. He opens the hood of a nearby sedan uh, and starts it up. And as they get in, they finally introduce themselves. He's Clyde Barrow. She's Bonnie Parker. <laughs> yeah, and this movie wastes no time, right? I mean, literally pretty much within minutes of meeting each other, they commit their first crime and get going. And I, they didn't spend like a bunch of time with her, with her family or growing up or anything oh, like that. Yeah. Like, Here we go. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. No, gets, uh, they get right to it. I, uh, I kind of like that. <laughs> So they drive off as some of the locals start coming out. The street has been fairly deserted, but now some of the local buildings, people come out of it to see what all the fuss is about. And then banjo music starts up as they're roaring out of town. And right near the beginning of this tune, there there are a few notes that I recognized. And I I looked it up, and this this tune is called Foggy Mountain Breakdown. It's it's one of the more famous banjo tunes out there and and this appears throughout the movie we'll hear it many more times hey what's your name anyhow clyde barra hi i'm bonnie parker pleased to meet you
So as soon as they're out in the country and presumably out of trouble, Bonnie is all over Clyde while he's driving. <laughs> she's uh, so, so much so that she's a distraction. He swerves to avoid a collision with the horse-drawn cart coming the other direction. And then just keeps fishtailing all over the road because she's so aggressive with him. So finally, right. he pulls over just to avoid crashing the car. He tells her to slow down. He gets out of the car and he walks around a moment as she sits there looking frustrated. And finally, he tells her, I ain't much of a lover boy. I never saw no percentage in it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I'm not sure it's known for absolutely sure, although obviously this movie takes it very seriously but they do believe that he was impotent hmm. and i think the natural that thing and and they don't put a point on this but it's i think it's pretty obvious the natural idea at least in the movie is that the bank robberies are kind of their way of having sex mm -hmm. right? kind of a surrogate for it yeah, it makes sense yep. so after he after he tells her he never saw no percentage in it she says your advertising is just dandy folks would never guess you don't have a thing to sell <laughs> yeah one thing i want to insert here because it's a bit, when they were driving and she was distracting him we see the first thing that is another thing that's going to be through the film and it's it's one of the only i would argue one of only a couple of badly done things which is they're doing rear projection when they're driving mm -hmm. and it is terrible mm -hmm. and there are points where i would think we were watching a monty python comedy <laughs> the the driving is so bad you know they're yanking the steering wheel back and forth yeah, and yeah, the yeah. you know the film in the background isn't doing the same thing they're doing with the steering wheel it's just like oh my god guys this is a you know big high prestige expensive film and you couldn't do better than that but okay so you just you just have to accept it anything in a car the background is just terrible yeah <laughs> So she says that he had better take her home. He replies, if all you want is a stud service, you get on back to West Dallas and you stay there the rest of your life. <laughs> he says that she can find a lover boy anywhere. He says it don't make a damn to them whether you're waiting on tables or picking cotton, but it does make a damn to me. <laughs> and again, he really cares. And they met now about 10 minutes ago, I don't know, an hour ago. You know? Yeah. Very, yeah. So very the film, I assume the film is compressing a few things here. <laughs> yeah. It could be. But then again, after, uh, after robbing the grocery store, they could have got, uh, yeah. got Bonnie's motor running. No, no. There's also some echoes here of Thelma and Louise, which we may or may not have published that one by now but anyway there's some similarities right where they're ramping up their crimes and it kind of starts with after shooting the guy with what's her name going into the store and doing the robbery and you know yeah, so there's some, i think some similarities there i think the the first thing the first thing they do that was just arguably a completely willful crime was that grocery store so yeah yeah I guess that's the gateway drug of crime is uh, holding up grocery <laughs> yep. stores. Bonnie asks him why it makes a damn to him. She just says, why? He says, she's like him. They want different things, not, not different things from each other, but different things from the things that the world at large wants. He describes her walking into an expensive restaurant in Dallas in a silk dress. You know, he sort of. Painting a picture of the sweet life that they might uh, have eventually. And uh, she asks why again. He says she may be the best damn girl in Texas. <laughs> so he's, uh, he's apparently grown very fond of her very fast. 
they end up in a booth in a diner. And he does something like a cold reading. And you know what that is. It's the tech yeah, technique yeah. where somebody takes whatever little scraps of information they can glean about a person and tries to make it like they really have this in-depth insights or they're maybe getting messages from the spirits or, you know, it's, it's easier if you have a crowd because then you can say, I'm getting a name, Brian, you know, and <laughs> watch for somebody to react and then you go to that person. He's doing well enough with it. He tells her about her frustration with her job, uh, her occasional dates with the customers and the truck drivers who come in. So he's, uh, he, he seems, seems to be impressing her with his, uh, with his perception. The waitress comes by and brings Bonnie a hamburger. Uh, she's an older lady. Um, Bonnie is clearly upstaging her appearance department. But this waitress has little curls hanging down in front of her ears, little ringlets. And Bonnie has the same type of thing. And after the waitress walks off, Clyde says, change that. I don't like it. So Bonnie adjusts her hair, and then Clyde's happy. He says, you're a knockout. Yeah, and I think this thing with the old lady, uh, old waitress, obviously being the version of her that she never wants to become. Mm -hmm. Again, that is, and I didn't think about it until we were just doing this. That is mirrored in Thelma and Louise. Remember, there's a shot where, oh, um, where uh, they look into a window and there are two old women, you know. Right, Thelma. That's, I think yeah. that's during. Yeah. No, uh, no, that's Louise, right? Because she's sitting in the car and Thelma's in there yeah. robbing the grocery store and the two ladies right. are in a different part of the store. Out. Yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> Again, the vision of the future. That It wouldn't surprise me at all even though I've never heard this, to find out that they made a lot of use of this movie for Thelma and Louise because mm -hmm. we're just, you know, running across these these similarities. And, of course, mm -hmm. Thelma and Louise is about two people going on a crime spree, right? So, oh, sure. Yep. Yeah, it, uh, I imagine they got a good deal of inspiration out of this, probably. So out, out in the parking lot of the diner, uh, Clyde walks up to a coupe, or a, a coupe, as we'll find out. <laughs> uh, I'll have more to say about that later down the road. And Bonnie, uh, Bonnie says, but we come in this one. Clyde replies, that don't mean we have to go home in it. So they drive off in, uh, in the two-door car. Yeah, I guess cars were very hot-wireable or <laughs> didn't have regular keys or I don't know what the deal was, but they they never have any trouble just jumping into a car and driving yeah, off. Yeah, I know. I know a lot of the early ones had, uh, had crank starts, and it looks like they're past that at this point, and we actually... Later on in the movie, at one point, we do see somebody actually using uh, an electric ignition. So I'm not sure what's going on with these cars we they've stolen so far. But he doesn't seem to have a lot of problem taking them anyway. So they drive off in their new car, and then we see uh, they're in some old house with broken windows. It's in Yeah, there's like no furniture or anything. So it's clearly like just like an abandoned place that... Right. That Clyde found. And Bonnie is sleeping on cushions on the floor. They look like car seats, um, and they look like uh, shiny new car seats. So I'm suspecting they might be removable from that vehicle. Mm -hmm. She briefly panics. She calls for Clyde, uh, so she remembers his name. That's good. <laughs> Always good after you've known somebody for a day. <laughs> but he's just outside. He uh, He slept in the car. She makes a remark about the accommodations, and Clyde says, if they're after us, I want the first shot. So uh, there's a strategic purpose to this mm -hmm. thing. Outside, 
he has bottles lined up, five bottles, on top of a sign. And the sign says the home is property of Midlothian Citizens Bank. I thought that meant that implied that the home was foreclosed, and we'll find out very shortly yep. it is. He knocks out, he takes five hip shots, which is he holds the gun down at his waist and doesn't aim it down the sights or anything like that. And with five hip shots, he takes out four out of five of the bottle. So, yeah, and I'm just going to say with some recent experience, this is movie stuff. <laughs> 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 Also, I mean, he didn't do this, but all those movies, this is one of the things I've been learning recently uh, as I've been getting some training. All these movies where you see them, you know, f uh, flipping the hammer, fanning the hammer, I think mm -hmm. they call it to do like four or five shots with a revolver in a row. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. yeah, you can't hit anything doing that, <laughs> but it looks, it looks good in a movie. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. looks good when Clint Eastwood does it. <laughs> so he gives Bonnie a pistol of her own and tells her to get the tire swing spinning. Her first shot misses, but she does it on the second shot. So they're both, and she's very excited. Yeah, about they, they're both <laughs> yeah. pretty pleased about it. So a man in a straw hat and overalls comes around the corner of the house and surprises Bonnie and Clyde. They aim their guns at him, and he says, "No, sir, no, sir." He's <laughs> he's a little little on edge, but uh, you know maybe you shouldn't be walking towards the gunfire when you don't know what's going on. But, uh, oh well. Anyway, he he's there now and. Bunny and Clyde see a, a car idling nearby with a woman and child inside. Another child is standing on the running board. So they lower their weapons. They figure this guy's probably not a... It's thing. also one of these cases where all their earthly possessions are packed onto and around mm. the car. And it reminds me of that. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the comedy with the, um, the Hicks? The Beverly Hillbillies. Oil. Yeah, Beverly Hillbillies starts out that way. And I, I guess, you know... Between these two things, this must reflect kind of a reality of what people had to do if they got kicked out of their house, that they literally had to yeah. just pack everything into the car or on the car. Or, I know. think, uh, I'm not sure, but I think maybe in the Grapes of Wrath, they do a similar mm -hmm. thing. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Before yeah, it makes time. sense. I mean, that's in this whole period. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think that was a genuine thing that happened. Well, hell, today I, I see people drive by my house with cars loaded up that way. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's been going on for a while, I guess. So the man in overalls, he says this used to be his place, but it isn't anymore. The bank took it. Another man approaches, uh, and that this is kind of an interesting for, for the time period, uh, that the, the first guy, he's a white guy. This man is black. We find out that he was the partner of this other man in, in the farming. Yeah. And he doesn't, I think part of what you're referring to, you know, is he doesn't treat him as a lesser. He says the two of us built this place. Right. Treats him very much as an equal. Yeah. The farmer, having made his introductions, he says, you go right ahead. Well, he hasn't enter introduced any names yet, but he tells Bonnie and Clyde, you go right ahead. We just come by for a last look. <laughs> so Clyde shoots a few holes in the bank sign. Then he offers the pistol to the farmer. Farmer fires around into the sign. He smiles and winks just instantly so you know it's easy to miss a little wink uh calls his calls davis over it turns out that's his partner's name farmer takes one more shot and shatters a window then he hands the gun to davis davis shatters a couple windows then the farmer hands the pistol back he thanks clyde and introduces himself as otis harris clyde introduces himself and bonnie and says we <laughs> rob banks 
Right. And obviously the guy sort of feels like, oh, that's okay with me because they just took my house. <laughs> and this starts a thread, which, you know, you have to make your own decision, right? Because as they go through, Clyde likes to style themselves as Robin Hood, right? Mm -hmm. They're just robbing the bad guys and they're not hurting the working people and all this. And, but, you know, with one or two little things where they give somebody a little bit of cash, they, they aren't exactly turning the money over to them. You know, they're using it for themselves. So you kind of have to decide how much that's just a way to make themselves look good or if that's what he really believes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we do see him do a couple generous things, uh, but it's not a constant process. So next, as soon as he's told the farmer that they rob banks and they're happy uh, or the farmer seems doesn't seem happy to hear it, but he doesn't seem uh, put off by it either. <laughs> Next, we see that Bonnie is driving and Clyde is getting her mentally prepared. He says, your mama could take this back. <laughs> While her eyes are on the road and she's not looking at him, he looks a little apprehensive, though. But there's not any fear in his voice that I could tell when he's, when he's actually. Yeah, but they are, even though he has some experience, you know, they are at the beginning of all this, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't really know what they're doing. Right. As we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so they get to this bank, uh, Clyde heads in and there's only one teller in there. There's nobody else, no security guard. The teller says the bank failed three weeks ago, which, uh, kind of makes you wonder why he's sitting at the counter in there. <laughs> well, so yeah, somebody has to cash it. But it was kind of funny because, you know, Clyde comes in and he's got his gun and, oh, you're going to do this and that. And the teller's just like, eh, no. <laughs> 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 you know, he's not impressed at all. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. So Clyde orders the teller outside so that Bonnie will believe the story. Yeah. I thought this was hilarious. <laughs> big, big, bad bank robber. And his concern is that his girlfriend won't believe him. <laughs> so when she hears what happened, uh, she laughs and laughs. She, she does a lot of laughing. Oh, no. <laughs> and Clyde shoots out the front window of the bank and drives off. Uh, doesn't doesn't harm the teller at all. Just uh, just the window. Bonnie is still laughing, and Clyde uh, Clyde seems a little steamed. But after a moment, he starts to smile. Then they're at a general store. Clyde has a grocery bag, just a paper bag, and the cashier is loading it up while Clyde brandishes his gun, and he asks the cashier whether he's sure he doesn't have any peach pies. But while he's distracted, hey. semi-distracted, a butcher comes up behind him with a cleaver, which would be a painful thing to be attacked with usually. Yeah. But, uh, but Clyde spins at the last moment and he avoids the chop. He, he must have sensed the guy behind him. They get into a big scuffle and finally Clyde knocks the butcher out. Bonnie and Clyde take off in a hurry without. He does some shooting too. I think he probably wounds him at least in that whole process. No, oh, okay, could be. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I just remember the the knockout being the authoritative end of the fight. But yeah, they do have a little bit of choreography in there when they're knocking things over and making a mess. Clyde, as they're driving away, he seems puzzled that he was attacked. He says, "I ain't against him," and he repeats <laughs> it. Uh, so he's really. Uh, he seems almost genuinely perplexed that the guy came after him with the cleaver. 
Yeah, yeah. He takes his like, oh, you know, as we'll see more. I mean, they're they're against the law. They're not against the people. Now, the fact that they're stealing the people's stuff, you know, <laughs> it's somehow supposed to be okay, and that's the part he doesn't get. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So then they're at a gas station, and there's an attendant there who blows the dirt out of the fuel line uh, that was making the car perform badly, and, and that fixes it right up. And I, I thought when I first saw him, I thought this guy looked familiar. And it wasn't until later on in the movie where it suddenly hit me why, where I recognized him from. Uh, in the movie Scrooged, he was Herman, uh, who you haven't seen Scrooged yet, if I remember no. right. But, uh, but there's a character named Herman. That's him. I looked it up, and it's Michael J. Pollard is his name. And he has a very long and impressive list of credits to his credit from 1958 up to 2020 and there's one other movie in post-production now that has been released yet so he's he's had quite a career and i noticed while i was skimming over that list he was in dick tracy in 1990 which both starred and was directed by warren Beatty. so right, i guess right. uh, i guess they must have got along okay he has a really tough role to play in this because he's clearly not fully mentally there, but he's not an idiot. You know, I mean, he, he's so he has to play this kind of mix, which makes the character more interesting. And I assume, mm -hmm. you know, I imagine uh, is sort of challenging as an actor. Yeah, he's uh, he's intelligent enough to function more or less. Uh, normally, but, but he, he does make a couple blunders when they get into it. Well, we'll get to that one. Yeah. <laughs> so Bonnie asks the attendant what kind of car this is that she's sitting in that he's just finished fixing. Uh, he says it's a four cylinder Ford coupe. He says, no, <laughs> it's a stolen four cylinder Ford coupe. Yeah. And, uh, I believe that's his own pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh. I believe, um, I don't know if yeah. it was always widespread, but, but the coupe comes from French. It just means cut mm -hmm. because it's, they're shorter cars than sedans are. Mm -hmm. uh, at least, I don't know if all Americans pronounced it this way, but a lot of them did because, you know, we see it here. And then if, if, uh, you play LA noir, that happens too. <laughs> like, uh, you'll get a call from the police stations, you know, uh, Fort Coupe and, uh, whatever street. And now that you mentioned L.A. Noir, everybody has to take a drink. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's just a little little historical fun. So I, I, I often call them coupes if I have an occasion to bring it up at all. <laughs> Clyde seems to be thinking about bringing this fellow along, but he says, nah, he's better off here. The attendant introduces himself at last as C.W. Moss. Bonnie introduces herself and Clyde, and she says, we rob banks. So she's picked up. And she's also been kind of seducing him this time throughout this, or, you know, clearly mm, sort of, yeah. you know, flirting the moves. Yeah. 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 Not, not that she's trying to have sex with him, but she's clearly just trying to get his interest. Oh, you know? sure. But CW, uh, seems intrigued that they would even consider letting him in on the action. And he boasts that he spent a year in reformatory. <laughs> so he's a bad guy. Yeah. yeah, Bonnie and Clyde aren't too impressed by that. They don't know that he has what it takes to pull bank jobs. 
So to prove it, C.W. goes into the gas station, cleans out the cash register, and drops the money in Bonnie's lap. <laughs> so that's uh, quite a show of uh, faith there. I mean, they could very well just say, thanks, sucker, and take <laughs> off. But instead of just taking off, Clyde reaches back to open up a rear seat. It's uh, kind of neat. There's like a little compartment in the back that opens up for a single seat for a third person. Right. It's where like the trunk would be on most cars, yeah. you know, at least at least modern cars. I think right. trunks were not so common back yeah. then. Yeah. Actually, actually, trunks were literally trunks that were strapped to the car. Oh, that's true. <laughs> good point. Yeah. It's, I had never thought about that. That's a good, good catch. <laughs> He tells CW he'll be all right. That is, you know, he has confidence that uh, he may have a future with them. CW gets in. Yeah, I think this also is a subtle indication of that poverty thing I was talking about. I mean, clearly CW has nothing because he can just get in the car and go. Right? <laughs> it's not like he's got stuff he needs to bring or he's leaving behind or anything like that. You know? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, of course... In this time period, uh, in the, it's the early 30s, if I remember right, law enforcement is a very different kind of game. You don't have the internet. You don't have all the security cameras. You don't have mm -hmm. uh, cell phones with built-in location trackers. <laughs> it's a it's a different different ball game back then. So that butcher that we saw earlier getting beat up in the grocery store. We see him now in a hospital bed, uh, and he's got matching shiners, two black eyes. And uh, the police are showing him mugshots. And finally, the mugshot with Clyde in it comes up. And the butcher doesn't say anything, but he gives the detective a very significant glance. So now now the uh, the bank robber has uh, has been identified. Bonnie and Clyde stop at a tourist court, which is a motel. CW is sleeping on a chair in the corner. Bonnie and Clyde are using the bed. And CW is snoring very loudly. Bonnie gets up and sort of lifts up her torso and leans over Clyde. She looks like she's about to wake him up and have yeah, it's, it feels like, yeah, she's she's kind of hoping for some action. <laughs> oh, that could be. I thought she was just going to ask Clyde to uh, shut the guy up. <laughs> could be both. Yeah, that was my interpretation. Since CW is dead asleep, she kind of, mm, yeah. you know. Yeah, actually, know. your interpretation is probably the more uh, likely one. She's probably going to give it another try with the, the lover boy stuff. But finally, she just lies back down and tries to sleep. And as soon as she gets back down, Clyde's eyes open. He, he's lying on his side looking away from her so she doesn't see it. But his eyes open, and, and I thought that was just because he was annoyed at the snoring. But now that now that you mentioned your idea, that I, that makes more sense, too, I think. He's, uh, he's right. like, dodged that bullet, I don't dare. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's a beautiful woman. <laughs> yeah. The next day, they... Uh, they're driving a two-tone red and black sedan. It's very, very red. It's like fire engine red. And they pull it up to a bank in a busy little town. I'm guessing generally, if you're a bank robber, you, you probably don't want to drive a car that's very easily <laughs> recognizable. The own red sticks out like a sore thumb in this town. They enter as a woman is arguing with a teller. 
Clyde says this is a stick up, but he doesn't say it very <laughs> loudly. He just sort of says it conversationally. The, nobody, nobody <laughs> in the room hears him. And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty full room. There's probably uh, yeah. close to maybe 10 people in there. So. so he repeats himself more loudly. People notice his gun then and they raise their hands while he's in there doing his business. CW unaccountably, he noticed a woman walking across the street and I thought maybe he, he did this to get a better look at her, but I'm not certain. That wasn't my impression. It's just, he sees a, a parking spot open up and decides that it would be a good idea as the driveway, you know, the getaway guy uh, to park the car. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's probably what it was. I guess in the, in the scene where the space became vacant, I was, you were looking at the woman. <laughs> now, that's about you. Yeah, I was, uh, I was imputing my own thoughts to him. So anyway, he, uh, he backs the car away from the bank, uh, and parallel parks in this space between two other cars. Bonnie and Clyde emerge from the bank with a bag of money, and they, they look for CW in the car as the bank alarm starts sounding. <laughs> and CW is having trouble getting out of the parking spot. Bonnie and Clyde have gotten into the car, but he keeps hitting the bumpers of the cars behind him <laughs> and then in front of him. He's, he's trapped, kind of like, uh, like that scene in Austin Powers where they got the cart sideways and all what. <laughs> Anyway, finally, they, they get out of the space, but as they're trying to get out of town, a man jumps up on the running board. And I'm not sure if this is a bank manager. Or yeah, he was like the bank manager, yeah. And first trouble, he gets shot right in the face by Clyde. Which was not really fair because, I mean, maybe Clyde didn't know this. He didn't have a gun or anything. He was just hanging on the side of the car. Mm. He was going to have to let go eventually. Yeah. But just kind of in the intensity of the moment, he shoots. Yeah. 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 He, he doesn't wait long before. I mean, the guy gets up there outside the window and it's uh, within seconds. The local police try to give chase, but all they, all they have, at least the ones who are in the vicinity, all they have is an old pickup truck. And they give up the pursuit right away before they even get out of town. So next we see uh, that they're in a movie theater, Bonnie and Clyde and CW. They're sitting towards the back so they can have their own little privacy and whatnot. Clyde is sitting in the row behind Bonnie and CW. And Clyde is more or less quietly <laughs> complaining that CW has screwed things up and they're all going to be wanted for murder. CW is quietly crying. Right. And Clyde even like hits him with his hat at one point, right? Yeah. Not, you know, it's not like he's punching him, he, but you know, he's, you know, making it clear how bad he feels or how mad he is about it. Yeah. Yeah. And Clyde even says that he'll kill him if he does something like that again. Now an echo here, and I do not recall if this really happened, them going to the movie theater, but if you remember, what's his name who shot Kennedy, uh, Oswald? Um, after he shot Kennedy, yeah, Oswald. He went into a movie theater hmm. as a way to, you know, escape. Cause you go, oh, I'm in a dark place. They won't be able to know to see me, et cetera. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. I did not know that. So that scene in the theater was really just to establish. I think that Clyde is pretty ticked off. CW is right. sorry. And also at the beginning, he's really upset about murdering somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's going to change. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is apparently his, his first time for that. So then we see Bonnie and Clyde are holed up somewhere. It, it might be a hotel. It's not a very fancy hotel if it is. But Bonnie is singing that song from the movie, uh, We're in the Money. 
Okay. And Clyde says the uh, the authorities don't know who Bonnie is yet. He's he's offering her a chance to back out and get out of this whole business before things really go south. He tells her, you could get a rich man if you tried. She says, I don't want no rich man. He says, you ain't going to have a moment's peace. She says, you promise? <laughs> and they both smile. She lies on back on the bed. And uh, Clyde kisses her, then he draws the window shade. He kisses her some more, and it looks like he might be turning into a lover boy here. But then he rolls off her. Then she rolls onto him. She's persistent. And uh, they kiss some more, and she's moving down to his crotch, you know, moving her head down in that direction. But he rolls away and buries his face in the pillow. After just a brief moment, he reaches out to her, but then... Before they can start getting frisky again, he gets up. He walks over to stand in the corner, leaning against the wall. He says, at least I ain't a liar. And Bonnie isn't terribly happy about that, but but shortly she, she shakes her head a little and smiles as if to say, oh, well, it is what it is. So a man and a woman pull up to a house, and this might be where Bonnie and Clyde were in the earlier scene. This could be the, the tourist court. They greet Clyde standing outside. The driver of the car is Gene Hackman, but we'll find out that he's playing Buck, who's Clyde's hey, hey. brother. He hops out and he starts roughhousing with Clyde, you know, fake punches and so forth. Clyde is Buck's baby brother. The woman in the car is Buck's wife, Blanche. Uh, so Bonnie, Buck, and Blanche, oh. With mere feet of each other. <laughs> Clyde calls Bonnie out. Buck introduces her to Blanche. And then C.W. comes out in his, it's like long underwear, but it's not as long. It's a onesie. <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it, but uh, uh, it's it's not really proper attire. So Blanche is pleasant to him, but she's awkward. But she's clearly, inwardly, she's sort of disgusted that he would greet her this yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Clyde asks Buck to take his picture. He holding he's holding a Tommy gun. Clyde is, and then Clyde takes a picture of Buck and Blanche together. Then he takes a picture of Bonnie with her foot propped up on the bumper of the car. Uh, she's holding a pistol and she's chomping a cigar. And as soon as he takes the picture, she uh, gets a little frown of distaste on her face and gets rid of the cigar. So that was just just for effect. And these, these pictures are real and they were an important part of building their mythology, right? Because eventually, I think maybe before they were killed, but, or maybe when they were, the pictures were found and put in the papers. Mm. And so the picture of her with a gun and all that and the cigar, that's what really turned them into legends. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I know later she'll, uh, she'll submit something to a newspaper uh, yeah, we'll get poem, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Buck is eager to have a chat with his brother inside, away from everybody else. So they go in. Buck says, "Tell me true, is she as good as she looks?" And Clyde, not wanting to admit that he's not a lover boy, he says, uh, <laughs> "She's better." And then Buck asks about the man that Clyde killed, who Buck has heard about, and he says, "It, it must have been either." You or him, you had to do it, right? And uh, Clyde agrees, and that's the second lie he's told his brother. <laughs> yep. Buck 
is expecting to have a good time together with his brother, but he doesn't know exactly what kind of good time they're going to have. So Clyde suggests going up to Missouri where no one's looking for him. They should find a nice place to hole up and have a little vacation. Then Buck asks him about his toes. Then we get a little additional information. Clyde says he did it to get off work detail, which we'd already heard. But what we didn't know is that after he cut off his toes, the very next week he got paroled. Yeah, I believe this is true also. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sometimes you can't win, I guess. They drive to Missouri in two cars. The men are in one. They're telling jokes and having fun. Buck tells a long shaggy dog story about a son who sneaks brandy into his mom's milk. She's a teetotaler, so she won't drink brandy voluntarily. The doctor's doctor's orders are she's got to have it. You know, and it builds up over days. You know, he adds a little more brandy each day. And the punchline is, whatever you do, don't sell that cow. Uh, it's not, <laughs> not the funniest joke in the world, but, you know, a little chuckle, chuckle. Mm. You know, but uh, I mentioned that I, I originally didn't even put it in my notes, but it turns out this resurfaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I came back and made a point of mentioning. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the service we provide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the other car, the uh, the women are together. They're not saying anything to each other, and they're not smiling. Bonnie's driving and frowning, and Blanche is in the front seat sitting next to her. You know, and these aren't bucket seats. It's just the bench seat. But Blanche is angled away slightly, and she has kind of a disapproving look on her face. They get to Missouri, and they rent a house for a month. We see the, we see the owner doing his final arrangements and leaving. The house is uh, very comfortable inside. Buck got the number of the local grocery store from the owner, and he calls and places a big food order. Yeah, I I guess I hadn't really thought about the fact that they kind of had the equivalent of Grubhub at the time Mm. where you could, you know, call the local place and get them to deliver it. Oh, yeah. Although I I get the impression the guy who delivered it actually did it on foot. It's not like he was (laughs) uh, driving a car over there. Yeah. (laughs) While he's making that call, Blanche is roaming around. Uh, She's She's delighted by a lot of little details. She sees that there's a real refrigerator. It's not just a nice box. Although she gets a look on her face, like whatever is currently in there has gone bad. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I refuse to say whether I have any familiarity. (laughs) (laughs) So Bonnie is smiling, watching all this enthusiasm and activity. Uh, she looks uh, genuinely cheerful. I think one of the themes for her, we'll see, is that she wants a family. She likes a family idea. And so, you know, we have this little brief moment where she can kind of feel that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then uh, we go from seeing her smile to the next scene where uh, (laughs) they're all still in pretty much the same places. They're in the living room of this house. But now she's watching Buck and CW play checkers, and she looks absolutely bored stiff. Blanche is sitting next to Buck, and she tells him he needs a haircut. He looks just like a hillbilly. And in terms of accents and cultural status and so forth, pretty much everybody in the house is a hillbilly. (laughs) You know, and I'm not saying that judgmentally. I I am uh, somewhat, well, let's say I'm (laughs) cross-cultural. But anyway, uh, when she when she tells Buck this, that he looks just like a hillbilly, Bonnie gives a little subtle nod to gesture to Clyde that he should join her in the next room. And when he does join her, Bonnie does a 
short but rather unflattering impression of Blanche. And Clyde chastises her for it because she's not making a big effort to hold her voice down or anything, and Blanche is right in the next room. And Bonnie says there's always somebody in the next room, in this room, or in every other kind of room. She wants to be alone with Clyde. That's why she's unhappy. Clyde says, I always feel like we're alone. Bonnie says, do you, baby? She sounds glad to hear it. Sounds like she's a little comforted and she wants more comforting. But then Clyde says, I'm hungry. And he heads back out to the group. <laughs> so the delivery boy from the store arrives. He rings the doorbell. Bonnie answers and counts out the exact amount it looks like. I don't think she gives him a tip or anything. Right. I'm not sure. I don't know if tipping was part of the culture then. I don't know. I think I think it was. I think it was even even back in you know the 1800s, mm-hmm. although different. You know, different people, you'd tip differently or not at all. But mm-hmm. I think a delivery mm-hmm. boy generally would, but she doesn't anyway. She mm-hmm. she carries the bags in herself. She just asks him if he'll close the door behind her. And he looks a little suspicious because when he was walking up the drive, he saw somebody in an upper window, and that was Clyde looking out, you know, scanning the surroundings. Mm-hmm. And as he leaves, he looks up at that window again, and he just sees the the curtain moving a little bit. So the delivery boy is, he thinks something's hinky here. A little later, Bonnie is reading a poem. But few of them really are justified if you get right down to the point. You've heard of a woman's glory being spent on a downright curve. Did you write all that yourself? And do you want to hear this or not? Her. Still, you can't always judge the story as true being told by her. Now, Sal was a gal of rare beauty, though her features were coarse and tough. I knew that old gal. She was cockeyed and she had a hair left them no teeth. <coughs> hey, Buck, come on now. Go ahead. Now, Sal was a gal of rare beauty, though her features were coarse and tough. She never once faltered from duty to play on the up and up. Sal told me this tale on the evening before she was turned out free. And I'll do my best to relate it, just as she told me. I went to look it up to find out who wrote this poem because she doesn't get a chance to finish it here. And it turns out this is a real poem she wrote herself. And we'll Mm -hmm. get another snippet of it down the road. But this is historically true, anyway. Now, I don't, I don't yep. know if she actually read it in the living room of this house, <laughs> but the poem exists. Yeah, she wrote poems a lot. Okay. Yeah, and as she's reading, Buck keeps interrupting. It's really, uh, yeah, kind of uh, insensitive. <laughs> he's making little jokes. You know, he's he's trying to keep it light and be funny, and and they're they're cute jokes. In themselves, but it's when somebody's trying to read a poem that they wrote, it's not really the right time. (laughs) Clyde looks out the window while the poetry reading is going on, and he sees a police car pull into the driveway. He says the laws are outside. They're blocking the driveway. Yeah, and it's interesting because this is like during the day. And I think, well, one of the things we see, themes that we see here is that Bonnie and Clyde and company get more sophisticated in robbing banks. And the police also start out as naive and get more sophisticated. So at this point, 
they simply drive up in the middle of the day <laughs> where they can be easily seen mm -hmm. where, you know, in modern day, of course, what you would do is you would stake out the place for a day or two, and then you would find the time to do the raid when they're not going to shoot back. So it might be like three o'clock in the morning, right. right? But these guys just drive up <laughs> and think, okay, we're now going to take you guys on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, from the sheer number of people, it turns out that they brought, uh, cause there's a roadblock right at the end of the driveway, another one a little ways down the street. They probably did some kind of staking out already or did something to verify that these were the people they thought they were at least, at least you'd hope they did because otherwise uh, they'd just be coming <laughs> yeah. to. Right. Right. Knows. Yeah, the delivery boy tells you something and you go and just start shooting up the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although at that time, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stranger things have happened. So as soon as uh, Clyde has warned them about the laws are outside, immediately Blanche screams, which is not really the greatest reaction. And she doesn't just scream. She screams and screams and screams. Yeah. <laughs> she, she will not shut up. She has an initial <laughs> scream. Uh, followed by many, many more. <laughs> and of course. Yeah. So if the police didn't previously know that this was the place. <laughs> yeah. Now they know it's, yeah. uh, it's not kosher. So Clyde starts shooting right away. You know, they don't have time to set up and, you know, make their. Mm -hmm. These little arrangements or anything. And right away, everyone in the house except Blanche is shooting too. She's just still screaming. Buck makes a run for the car. Blanche is running behind him screaming nonstop. And she's she's <laughs> waving a butcher's cleaver around. <laughs> that doesn't really, uh, it's not a Chekhov's cleaver. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> but on the way to getting to the car, Buck shoots one of the policemen. So now he and his brother have both uh, shot somebody. The car bursts out of the garage, Clyde's at the wheel, and he just goes, he plows right into the police car that's blocking the driveway and pushes it out of the drive into the roadblock at the end of the drive where there are a few policemen gathered around there. And then they swerve around another roadblock in the street, and finally they're able to, to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Once they're down the road a little, Bonnie chews out Blanche for nearly getting them killed. Blanche turns to Buck for support, but he agrees with Bonnie, though he's, he's less stern about it. And he says he killed a policeman, so they're in this now. They're part of the gang. Yeah. Blanche keeps crying. At least she's not screaming anymore. Bonnie yells for her to shut up. Clyde yells yeah. at Bonnie. Bonnie tells him to stop the car which is rarely a good sign. So he drives a good ways into the field. And it's really, I thought maybe he was going to drive to try and hide the car behind some bushes or something, because, you know, he really makes a detour here. But no, he just drives a good ways into the field and then stops. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, he gets out and Bonnie and Clyde talk amongst themselves. She asks Clyde to get rid of them, of Buck and Blanche. She says Blanche is just a hick, and Clyde points out that Bonnie's no better, really. This is a bit of a turn. Like, he has always been pumping her up and talking about what a different and a woman she is and everything. And this time, 
you know, he's like, well, actually, you're the same as these people. <laughs> so it's, yeah. You know, it's interesting. We don't know what he thinks or kind of what the deal is here. But yeah, he, he talks about her being a waitress in West Dallas, I think. So, I mean, he's not really going out of his way to, you know, demean her. At this point, uh, it kind of amused me because in Network, you might remember that uh, William Holden had that line something to the effect that why do women always think the worst thing they can say to a man is to impugn his coxmanship and uh, <laughs> of course he said that to Faye Dunaway and uh, <laughs> so in this movie she's going to impugn Clyde's coxmanship she says the only special thing about you is your peculiar ideas about lovemaking which is no lovemaking at all and Clyde looks kind of hurt at that and he he sort of wanders away, but Bonnie apologizes and they, they calm down and they're, uh, they're, you know, before you know it, they're all sweet together. Yeah. I, I think we're kind of seeing, I mean, there'll be more bad times, but we're kind of seeing the low point for them where both of them turn on each other and both of them go after each other on their insecurities. Mm -hmm. But they seem to, they seem to ride it out. They get their bearings back. It looks like. And we see the car traveling down the road again. It might be the next day because they grab a newspaper that's hanging out of a mailbox and they, as they're driving by, they just swipe it. And so I would guess that would have taken a, a day to uh, get the newspaper out, but that could be wrong. It could be the evening edition too, I guess. They used to do that. So mm -hmm. Who knows? But then again, in a rural place, man, I'm overthinking this, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a whole side thing there I won't totally go into, but it was very interesting that there would be two, three editions of the paper in a day, and at least in England, mail would be delivered two or three times a day. So you yeah. might, it was kind of like email. You would mail somebody in the morning and get their response in the evening, mm -hmm. right? So when we, we think of all of our modern communication technology as completely new, but, you know, really a lot of it had some similarities even back then. Oh, yeah. As they're driving down the road with their stolen newspaper, Buck reads the latest about the Barrel Gang, and he's rather amused and enthusiastic about reading it. Mm. They've been reported all over the place, in Indiana and Texas, and many different states, many different events, uh, many of which have nothing to do with the Barrel Gang. <laughs> Clyde looks, uh, looks a little bit uncomfortable when Buck laughs about the reports of grocery store holdups, <laughs> because... He actually did some of those grocery store holdups. <laughs> <laughs> we see that Blanche has settled down. So that's probably another piece of evidence that this is, you know, the, the next day or like, because mm -hmm. she, she settled down and she's actually kind of smiling. She looks entertained by the reading, but then the article mentions Buck's name and she says, Oh Lord, but if she otherwise keeps <laughs> her composure. So, so she's coming to grips with it. It looks like. Mm-hmm. C.W. tells Clyde to pull off on a side road next to a pond. Now, C.W., I thought he was asking so that he could get out and relieve himself. But as soon as they park, it's Clyde who leaves the car. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, so if you rewind about 30 seconds, Clyde is looking very uncomfortable while he's driving oh, for about okay. 30 seconds. And C.W. realizes he, you know, yeah, he needs to, to take care of himself. Oh, okay, very good. So they're, they're pulled off on this little side road next to a, next to a modestly large pond. Clyde gets out of the car and we see that there's another car parked just around the corner. You know, there's a, there's a stand of trees 
blocking the line of sight between the two. I think cars. he drives up, actually, yeah. do you? So he might have been following them or something. Mm-hmm. So the, the line of sight is blocked by the trees out in the corner between the cars. He, he gets out, and he's dressed like a lawnman. He approaches the parked car with his pistol drawn. He's kind of semi-sneaky, I guess. <laughs> and uh, behind him, Clyde yells out, Sheriff! Shoots the gun out of his hand. This is another example of Clyde's great shooting skill, which may or may not be Yeah, true. and I don't recall if this is true or not, but if it is true, it's quite impressive because... Mm-hmm. Again, getting back to the whole gun shooting thing, it's almost impossible to do the shoot the gun out of the hand. Oh, yeah. Uh, idea, yeah. <laughs> so they cuff this, this guy. He's not actually a sheriff. They'll find out. They cuff him with his own cuffs, and they read his ID, and they, they read it as Frank Hammer. He's a Texas Ranger. Now, they pronounce it Hammer, but we'll find out later it's Hammer. So, Right. Although if he was smart, he would have branded himself with hammer because that goes nice, <laughs> nicely with a ranger. Oh, yeah. Frank Hammer. Well, there was that uh, TV cop called Sledgehammer. <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't recall that, that was, one. That was sort of like um, in the in the style of like Police Squad. Kind of oh, okay. Show. Yeah, that's going back a ways. <laughs> hammer, Hammer is out of his jurisdiction. But, uh, but Clyde figures he wants to collect a reward from the banks. Clyde says, you ought to be home protecting the rights of poor folk, not out chasing after us. We got to discourage this here bounty hunting for the barrel gang. So they debate whether to shoot him or hang him. But Bonnie says, take his picture hanging out with the barrel gang. She goes up next to the ranger. She takes the barrel of her pistol and uses it to brush his mustache affectionately, which would would be kind of unnerving, I would think. <laughs> yeah, he's got one of those big sort of here curl Perot mustaches. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Clyde lifts this ranger up onto the spare tire, you know, hanging off the back of the car. So he's sitting on top of the tire, and Clyde tells him about last year when poor farmers used their shotguns to keep the lawmen away from the barrel gang. Buck takes a picture of the ranger with Bonnie and Clyde. Then Bonnie gives him a big kiss on the lips. A big one. It goes on for a few <laughs> seconds. <clears throat> yeah, you feel like she might be uh, stealing a bit of what she's not getting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might be just a little, uh, trying to little, get a little taste of something. As soon as she breaks off, the ranger, very rudely, spits in her face. Yeah. So Clyde loses his temper. He throws the ranger into this pond. And uh, once he's all wet and bedraggled, he's still handcuffed. Clyde and Buck uh, dump him into a rowboat that's parked nearby, and they push it out into the pond, and he goes coasting off towards the center of the pond. Yeah. We don't really know. We never find out, like, how he gets out of the boat or gets the boat. You know, he probably can't get out of the handcuff. Mm-hmm. Somebody must have seen him or something, but we never find out how he gets out of this room. Yeah, yeah, now, we uh, we don't find that detail out, but we do find out that he got out. Now, I'm not sure what's accurate here. I feel like they were probably compressing some things because there is a streaming movie on you know one of the streaming services that was done just a couple of years ago called the highwayman 
which is the ranger point of view mm-hmm. on this story. And it has two rangers that are sort of drawn into this when all the cops can't get Bonnie and Clyde and they end up, you know, helping get them. And that's kind of what this ranger does. I'm not, sh- I, you know, I should have looked it up. I don't know if this thing about them taking a picture of a ranger is true or not, but you know, yeah. So, but clearly rangers were ultimately involved hmm. in their downfall. Yeah. 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 This, uh, I, 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 well, I'll, I'll save it for the worth watching part. <laughs> if, if you can remember that in two weeks <laughs> week actually not too long uh, i guess yeah a week I guess. but uh well, i may as well say it now this this movie made me interested to learn more of the actual history uh behind yeah. it well in which case both i'll recommend you know there's like a nova documentary or something which is good and the highwayman is really good it's uh woody harrelson and kevin costner okay as two rangers mm-hmm. who get kind of roped into this to help to help figure it out, yeah, okay. a really good movie. I enjoyed it, and I think it is pretty accurate. Ooh, very good. Okay, well, uh, we are now heading into the second part of the movie. So the gang enters another bank, and Buck and Bonnie and Clyde have guns. And Clyde says, "Good afternoon. This is the Barrow Gang. Now, if everybody will take it easy, nobody will get hurt." And again, I'm just thinking about this now. This is another reference or callback to Thelma and Louise, mm-hmm. right? Where that approach she learned from. From Brad Pitt. Yeah. That she learned from Brad Pitt about how to do it. It was very similar. Yeah, to he this. taught her that whole spiel. Yeah. And what we see now is that they are much better organized than when Bonnie and Clyde, of course, first got started. So in addition to that little starting speech. You know, Buck runs in and he hops over the bank window with the bars and everything. It's about a 10-foot hop. It's uh, pretty impressive. And Clyde throws a bag to him and, you know, he then has a teller start putting money into it. And meanwhile, at the same time, Bonnie goes to another teller and has her start filling a bag. And so they're very organized. Clyde has two guns pointing in two different directions. And... There's, you know, a, a man, clearly your typical farmer type there, and there's some money sitting in front of him, and he says, is that your money or the bank's? And the, the guy says, it's mine. And he says it in a very, like, he knows he's going to lose mm-hmm. it sort of way, and Clyde says, well, you can keep yeah. it, <laughs> you know, so that's part of him trying to be Robin Hood. So that's, yeah, that's um, one, of the, one of the few instances we see. And I actually thought if they were smart, or smarter after every robbery, they should have given money to somebody or some set of people mm. so that, you know, they would even more get the public on their side. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you'd think that'd be a good strategy, but then as far as the movie lets us know, they never get big hauls. They have terrible luck. No, no, they, well, yeah. Part of their problem is that they're robbing banks at a time when there's just not a lot of money going <laughs> around, you know, it's like depression era. And now here's an interesting thing, because already Clyde has evolved a lot in his approach. You know, he was originally really upset to get attacked and to kill somebody. Well, now one of the guards goes for a gun and without barely looking at him and without flinching, Clyde shoots, but he intentionally knocks the hat off of the guard instead of hurting Mm -hmm. him. And then he warns him that next time it'll be lower. (laughs) So he's very in control. He knows what he's doing now. And we see that CW is outside the bank as a clandestine lookout. And uh, on the way out of the bank, <laughs> Buck 
takes off an older guard's glasses and says, take a good look, Pop. I'm Buck Barrow. <laughs> and then alarm goes off and Buck yells to everyone in the bank, we're the Barrow boys. <laughs> so we see, you know, I think one of the whole fascinating things about the story that, again, is very true what the movies are reflecting is that this is one of the very early cases of of that sort of media branding sort of thing, mm -hmm. right? You know, where we want everyone to know who we are <laughs> these days, you know, we want to go viral on Twitter, <laughs> et cetera. That's essentially what they're doing. Yeah. It's worth mentioning probably these, this older guards glasses, they're these round rimmed kind of Trotsky glasses that, uh, are, uh, <laughs> you know, granny glasses, whatever you might call them, but they have black lenses, like, uh, sunglass lenses. And Blanche ends up wearing these in various scenes. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what the whole connection here is, but glasses are going to become important in several other ways. So clearly glasses have a big symbolic meaning in this movie. Mm -hmm. So Blanche is in the getaway car. And this is interesting because, you know, she's been dragged into all this. She's been fighting it all, et cetera. But now she's pretty much a part of things. And she yells for them to get mm -hmm. in. Cop cars chase them. There's some sort of casual shooting, you know, that whole, you know, hold your gun out the window and shoot, which isn't going to hit anything, <laughs> right? <laughs> but one of the things that's funny, we'll see this multiple times, again, as part of them getting more efficient, is that Bonnie, while they're shooting, Bonnie is loading the next set of guns for them to shoot back. Yeah. And, that, and I also appreciate that because getting familiar with guns recently myself, one of the, you never think about, it. you have these guns, you know, fights where 30, 40, a hundred, 200 shots are done. Once you actually work with guns, you realize somebody had to sit there at a time and load 200 shots into these guns. Yeah. And it took them like half an hour. Right? <laughs> so, so having the movie acknowledge that somebody had to be loading guns is actually pretty good. Yeah. No, with, with, you could have prepared magazines, but you'd have to, still carry them around and have them available. Yeah. And even then you had to spend a bunch of time ahead of time loading them up. Right. But of course, a lot of what they're shooting is revolvers. So there's only so much they can load. Yeah. And now we get, we go kind of back and forth between the chase and, and things that happened after it. So we get an insert of a cop talking to the press and, and, and now this is where the cops are getting into the whole media thing, which mm -hmm. we see all the time today. Oh, yeah. uh, did you see there's this hilarious photo of these cops all standing around with their guns of this haul they got and they have all this cash spread around and it's $1 bills. <laughs> if you look at it. So, I did not see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. Somebody must have robbed a strip club. <laughs> exactly. So this cop, you know, is talking to the press and he's like, there I was staring straight into the face of death. And then, you know, he's happy to get some publicity photos oh, yeah. them out of it. Meanwhile, and, and what we really see here is that at this point, I mean, the gang is at their high point, right? And so they just sort of officially robbed a bank and they're now, you know, driving away and being chased and being shot at. And they're just having a grand old time with you know, Bonnie reloading the guns and handing them to Buck and Clyde and them shooting out the window. And they're all just kind of like, they're having a good time <laughs> while they are being shot at. It's kind of yeah. funny. And then we get another insert and the guy who got to keep his money, you know, that farmer, mm -hmm. he says, all I can say is they did right by me and I'm bringing me a mess of flowers to their funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and this touches on something. They don't really, um, they don't emphasize this in the movie that they, they reference it here, which is. It is true, historically, everybody knew these guys were going to be killed at some point, mm -hmm. right? Because they had all of law enforcement after them. 
So there's no question they're going to be killed at some point. So for everybody, including them to some degree, it was just how long can they go? Yeah. So in this chase, the gang reaches the Oklahoma border, but the cops keep coming. They're like, ah, one of them's like, oh, let's go after him anyway, even though they don't have jurisdiction in Oklahoma. And they get a little ways in, and then one says, you know what? I'm not going to risk my life in Oklahoma. And they turn around. Now, I'm not sure why his life was more valuable in its home state than Oklahoma, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> well, in Oklahoma, he has the option to back down. So... You know, having escaped everyone, the gang is sitting around the car while CW works on the engine. And, you know, for all this excitement, as we mentioned, it turns out they didn't actually get much cash from the bank. There's just not a lot of cash going around at this point. And so Clyde starts distributing the loot and Blanche complains that she's not one of the people he's distributing it to. And she's like, I did my part and I was in the getaway car and I was... I could have been shot just like any of you. Yeah, well, she notices so, that Bonnie is getting a separate share from Clyde. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, she thinks she should get the same. Yeah. So Clyde gives in and he takes all the money back from everyone and starts redistributing it and including her, which triggers Bonnie to walk away in disgust. <laughs> so Clyde has a chase after her. And they're arguing about this when CW runs up and says, there's a hole in the oil pan, so they got to swipe out another car to get anywhere. Because I guess, I'm not sure why, but for some reason, you just can't fix a hole in the oil pan. Well, you could, you could fix it, but unless you have oil to, to replace what is mm. already drained out, you're going to burn yeah. out the engines. So. Good point. Good point. So next we see a well-off guy and a woman probably courting, and they're canoodling on a porch, you know, and they're clearly, you know, they have nice clothes and everything. And there are multiple cars in the background in the driveway. So while they're canoodling, we see the gang get in one of the cars and take off. And then the guy gets up and it turns out to be Gene Wilder. <laughs> that was a neat surprise. Not... I, mean, it... <laughs> yeah, would... I did see him in the credits, but even so you wouldn't expect it. Yeah, that's the, and so... know, sometimes I'll see people and I'll think, does he look familiar? But I mean, instantly it's, <laughs> it couldn't be anybody yeah. else. <laughs> <laughs> And so he and his fiance or girlfriend or whatever, you know, it's never totally 100% clear. They're not married yet, so yeah. whatever they are. They get in another car and chase the gang. <laughs> <laughs> and Gene Wilder has a really interesting take on this character. I'm not 100% sure that it works, but it is definitely weird and noticeable because <laughs> he's playing this very upper-class twit. Yeah. Um, kind of a milk toast <laughs> kind of guy. Yeah. So he is making very unconvincing speeches to his girlfriend who's driving, which in itself kind of shows you like, oh, he's the man, but he's not driving. So, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> what, how much manhood does he have? Mm -hmm. Right. And he's making these unconvincing speeches about how when they can, when they catch up to these people, he's going to tear them apart. <laughs> and then his girlfriend reminds him that they have guns. And he's like, you know what? Maybe we should turn this over to the police. <laughs> she says they could have guns because they, mm -hmm. they haven't seen evidence of it. Right, right. But that's enough to make him <laughs> change his tune. Yeah. Which, which is the appropriate well, thing. Sure. You should not be chasing people around. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. He's, he's and, making a good call, I think. So they turn the car around. And when Clyde sees that they turn the car around, he decides, let's take them and chases after them. And they cut off the car and everyone gets out and gets around the car and they're humiliating the couple sitting in the car. And then Clyde makes them get out and get into the car that they just stole with all the rest of them. So it's very crowded because <laughs> you have, what, about six people in this car. 
<laughs> it's a really, uh, really good looking. It's like a two-tone green, uh, you know, with like light mint color and then a darker green bumpers and trim. It's a slick looking <laughs> car. So kudos to Gene Wilder for his taste. So you notice all these colors. I just see car. <laughs> so Buck introduces the gang, you know, because of course at this point it's like, oh, we're the famous people you must know about, right? Bonnie says to them, don't be scared. It ain't like you're the law. You're just folks like us. <laughs> and so they've just kidnapped these people. We have no idea what they're going to do with them. They have no idea what they're going to do with them, right? And they've been driving for a while. And Buck is now telling his milk joke again. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's funny because they think it's hilarious, but all the rest of the car has heard the milk joke many times. <laughs> they're completely uninterested. But they're, they're like all one big family now. And, and Bonnie asks the woman how old she is. And this is hilarious because she says, oh, I'm 33. And then Gene Wilder looks at her and he gets this look on his face. And she then gets this look on her face like, oh, she just screwed yeah. up. And you see the whole story right there. <laughs> yeah, she was passing for a little younger, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I think at that time, I mean, 33, you're kind of past your time, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and then it's night and they're all eating takeout that they got from some restaurant. And again, I wasn't kind of aware that at that time you could just, you know, drive to a restaurant and get takeout, but I guess mm -hmm. it makes sense. And Clyde half jokingly suggests that this couple should join the gang and they're all getting along so well, you could kind of half imagine it happening. Mm -hmm. But then Gene says that his profession is undertaker. And Bonnie immediately goes cold. And I forget, it might have been that her father was an undertaker, or I, I don't know. Or, yeah, maybe, you know, I, maybe she's reminded them dying. I'm not 100% sure what the I deal is. Uh, I couldn't pin down why she had such a strong reaction to it. Yeah. But, but she, yeah, she, she turned immediately against him. Yeah, and she says, get them out of here. And the next thing we see, they're kicked out on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, just like that. And so they were all good friends, you know, 20 seconds ago. I didn't think about it at the time, but I was thinking about it today, and I'm not sure what that whole episode was for in terms of the hmm. overall story. Like, was it just sort of to learn that they're not, they haven't become murderous psychopaths who just, you know, kill anybody? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of it. You know, that it definitely shows that, that they do have the, you know, they very much express the difference between the law and regular people. But it also is a very long sequence. And you're right. If you cut out that five or seven minutes or whatever it is, it wouldn't change the movie. Yeah. So it's a legitimate question whether they should have kept it in. But of course, from our perspective now, getting to see Gene Wilder in a surprise oh, role yeah. uh, is worth oh, it. Oh, it. It, was, it was fun. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just, it's, not as vital as some of the other. Yeah. Unlike, I mean, uh, every other second of this movie is important, right? Mm -hmm. There's almost nothing you could take out and this sequence you could, yeah. right? So that is a difference. Yeah. So now it's in the morning and we see Bonnie walking in a wheat field and she's carrying a bunch of stuff with her and the rest of the gang is shouting, trying to find her, you know, some of them are driving the car and Clyde is running and they can't find her, but Clyde finally finds her and he tackles her. And she says, well, she wants to see her mama and Clyde agrees. So I feel like, and this is an interesting thing, given we just had this very long sequence that, as you said, didn't do much for the story here, <laughs> we're missing parts of the story, mm. right? Like really out of the blue, she just decided to grab some stuff and leave and walk home. Right. I mean, that's a pretty big plot point and they don't 
develop it or they don't give time with it. So I could imagine taking away the previous sequence and spending more time on this, mm -hmm. you know? So immediately after Clyde agrees, we see a bunch of families having a picnic on the grass. It's actually kind of near a, probably near a beach. I thought they were at a beach at first, but as the scene went on, I became more convinced that it's just like a, it's like some kind of sand pit out on the prairie somewhere, hmm. I think. I, yeah. I, I didn't see any water. Yeah, and I, I have to admit, I am geographically illiterate, and I didn't think to look at where they are and if there would be a beach hmm. yeah. or anything like that, so good point. Yeah, it was hard to tell, but it did seem like the sand, it's not like they were on the water, hmm. so it definitely could have been an internal thing. So Bonnie is reunited with her very old mother, who's sort of out of it, you know, but, you know, but not totally out of it, as we'll see. CW is on a hill keeping watch with a rifle. And, you know, they're all doing stuff and kids are running around and the family has been keeping a scrapbook of their antics. This overall thing is accurate. They actually regularly return to the family. The family was important to them and they all spent time together. Yeah. They show it only happening once here, but it actually happened multiple times. No, no kidding. I mean, they, they got quite a few people. I mean, it's like a little miniature family reunion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the things, one of the reasons they had to meet in remote places like this, and this is actually represented in the highwaymen, is that because the cops knew they'd gotten like a letter from Bonnie or, or Clyde to the family, they intercepted it and realized that they were going to meet together. So. There were cops and feds and stuff hanging around the whole place. Hmm. And there's a little bit of a implication here, but they don't get into it. But you see that much better in the highwaymen. So that's why they would find a remote place to oh, meet, yeah. you know, so that they couldn't be found. So as the party is wrapping up, Bonnie is clearly disturbed after talking to her mother. But in particular, she's disturbed when she hears Clyde saying that these days they don't have a direction. They just run from the law. And later, he, he, in talking to her mother, he says, when they finally catch us. When he says those things, Bonnie doesn't like it. I think one thing she doesn't like is that he's, now, I could be wrong, but it came across to me that, that Clyde was giving the mom kind of a line of patter. He was just making up lies hey. to tell her to make her feel hey. good. So if he does that to her mom, will he do it to her? That's, that's how hey. I interpret it. Okay. That could be wrong. Yeah, so I saw her mostly responding badly to him saying, we're going to get caught, yeah. right? So, but, so Clyde, as you're saying, he tries to reassure Bonnie's mother, and he says eventually they want to settle down within three miles of her, and they think that saying that will reassure her. But she, and again, she's, she's very out of it. She's kind of in another world. You know, she's sort of very old, et cetera. But she says, you should not do that. You won't live long if you do that. And, and I think this is that kind of subtle reference to what I was talking about, where there are cops all over the place around her right. and her family. So, you know, if they did that, they would be immediately caught. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say for a movie that I think is pretty well done, except for the, uh, you know, the, the back screen for the, the driving, the green screen, this whole outdoor scene is weirdly shot. There's some awkward things. And it seems to me pretty clear that certain reaction shots were shot at different times and they don't really match up and there's some awkward acting. And if I had to take a guess, and I haven't seen something about this, you know, they're out there somewhere out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of sand and a bunch of wind. And I'm just going to guess that between the sand and wind and everything that they just had a heck of a time shooting all this. Yeah. And after they shot a bunch of stuff, they just had to put it together with whatever they had. Right. 
kind of like our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's not, it's not nearly as polished as the rest of the film, yeah. right? I do, it just, it, I felt some awkwardness okay, here. Okay, yeah, I, I, I didn't pick up on it, but I, uh, I'm going to trust your, trust your judgment on this one. <laughs> yeah, so now we're seeing the gang all together at night in what seems to be a hotel room or a cabin, I guess as they call it. And Bonnie is unnerved and grumpy as the others are playing around. <laughs> and they all start yelling at each other, and Clyde breaks it up by sending C.W. and Blanche to get some chicken dinners from a nearby place. And then Bonnie and Clyde are finally alone together and she's depressed. And one of the things that depresses her, and I think this is really interesting. As I said earlier, I think she was looking for family in that moment where the gang was sort of a family. She was kind of mm-hmm. happy, but you know, she just met her mother and she had really, really wanted to get back and see her mother. And she says, well, my mom is not my mother. She's just an old woman now. Mm-hmm. And so she says she has no family. And she also realizes that the stuff they set out to do, well, that's what they're doing now. It's never going to be any different than this. This yeah, is Yeah, she's never going to walk into that restaurant in Dallas in a silk dress. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, that was reinforced earlier by Clyde saying, when we get caught and we can't choose where we go, we're just running from the police, right? right. So that kind of set this idea, yeah, there's, there's no, we're not going to do exactly what you said. We're not going to get the silk dress and we're not going to do those things. Then we switch to Blanche and CW driving and talking. And this is interesting because these are two characters. We don't get to see too much of their development. So that now they're alone and we get to see them interacting. And Blanche is also upset, but she realized she can't go back. She was a preacher's daughter. You know, her husband has now killed somebody. The group is famous, et cetera. So she can't go back to her family. They go into the diner and a guy in a cowboy hat sees that CW has a gun under his jacket. He's got it tucked right into his, uh, right into the waist of his pants, pointing right down at yeah. his, uh, meat and potatoes. Sir. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not the best idea, but you know, we're doing a lot of gun protocol. <laughs> <laughs> it also kind of shows you, I guess, even though we think of in earlier times, people carrying a lot of guns, maybe, you know, maybe there weren't so many because, you know, just the fact that this guy has a gun kind of makes this guy suspicious. And as soon as they leave, he goes and calls the sheriff. Then the cops approach their rooms in the dark and one knocks on Buck and Blanche's door. And this is a real, uh, development, you know, real arc for Blanche, because remember the very first time they had a problem, she just screamed and screamed and got them right. in trouble and she wasn't in control at all. This is completely different. Mm. She immediately knows what to do. She puts her hand over Buck's mouth. So he doesn't say anything because he's getting up to like, you know, go say something or shoot or whatever. And she yells out to the officer outside. The men are on the other side. Yeah. It's a good ploy. Yeah. So she's really on top of it here and she's really just saving her husband. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and plus this time by making noise this time where before the screaming screwed things up, now she's actually possibly buying Clyde a moment. Yeah. And the cop buys it. It's funny. He doesn't try to go in or anything. He just moves on. <laughs> okay. I guess the men are on the other side. Multiple cop cars pull up and start shooting. And another case where they didn't really bother to really verify who was inside. So I hope they're right. Cause they, but now we also see again, that development of the cops, right? Just like the gang has been improving their technique. The cops have now approved. So not only are they doing this at night and they have a whole bunch of cars pull up at the same time. 
instead of like just one car. But also they have a tank-like armored car, you know, a very early version of that sort yeah. of thing. So, That's you impressive. know, you even wonder if they maybe created it because of all <laughs> this. Who knows? Yeah. And now they are not using pistols. They're using machine guns. <laughs> oh, and I should, I should mention, uh, in the, in the recent remake of the first game in the mafia series, uh, there's a sequence where you have to drive to escape one of those armored cars. <laughs> and, uh, here, you know, a gunfight ensues, uh, but now the gang is also upgraded to machine guns, you know, and, and they even have grenades. I mean, they never showed us any of this. So just, they just, sort of, you know. This has happened in the meantime. Everybody's upping their yeah, game. Yeah, the grenades were kind of a surprise. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because, again, Bonnie is very much, you know, very present. And she's the one who gives grenades to CW and tells him to go take out some of uh, the car. So Clyde runs outside and shoots the hell out of one of the cars and causes it to flip over. Meanwhile, Buck and Blanche put a, or they're carrying a mattress in front of them as a, uh, as a shield, which is actually probably pretty effective because mattresses are thick and CW, while all the shooting is going on, does manage to get out and grenade the armored car. So even though they had an armored car, that didn't work out. Uh, in fact, one of the downsides of a tank or an armored car is if you get like a grenade inside or in some way piercing, it just then shrapnel from the grenade just ricochets around inside mm. so everybody gets oh, shredded yeah. when that well, happens that's a, uh, i guess you'd almost call it a trope in video games you know when there's a tank you uh climb up <laughs> on it drop a grenade in it although i have i had the ones like the early world war ii ones where you go and slap some explosive on the tracks mm. uh to get it to stop and then what they would actually do and i think this was in uh, saving private mm -hmm. Ryan, you know, you would take your sock and you would put some explosives in it and put, put some sticky and yes, yeah, slap your sock up against yeah, it. I think <laughs> you put a, like grease or something on. Yeah. We, we have way too much experience with this <laughs> stuff. We, we may have the FBI showing up. <laughs> Surprisingly with all the, you know, gunfire and everything is being, being traded. Uh, the gang is doing pretty well, but then Buck gets shot in the head. Mm -hmm. And Blanche gets shot in the eye. But amazingly, even so, they all still managed to get into a car and drive away. And I'm going to say, they have half a dozen cars there and an armored car. And you knew what you were doing. And you have machine guns. And these guys managed to just get in a car and drive away. <laughs> <laughs> the police are not doing their job here. <laughs> yeah, that would be a disappointment from the police point of view, I think. <laughs> so they then find another car. But it says switching to it. I'm, I'm not totally sure what the deal was here. CW steals that car and drives it himself, but they keep both cars and they drive on. Everyone's upset and arguing with each other. Blanche realizes she can't see. Buck is too hurt, seriously hurt to be moved, you know, and he's delirious and saying things that don't make sense. Yeah. And they're kind of in a grove at night. And in the morning... <laughs> Turns out the, you know, the cops have found them and they're in the woods all around and they start shooting. <laughs> I'm just going to say once again, they knew where they were. They had all night to plan and they shoot the hell out of them. But still, you know, Clyde just gets in the car and the whole gang gets in the car and Clyde drives it around in circles. His arm gets shot. Then they dive out of the car. And for some reason, at least as the movie presents it, the cops are really focused on taking out the car. <laughs> so they spend like a couple of minutes 
just shooting the car until it blows yeah. up. Meanwhile, during that couple minutes, the entire gang runs off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they want to maybe keep them from driving off, I guess. But, uh, yeah, they still got their legs. <laughs> right. But Blanche and Buck, you know, with their problems, can't follow. And so they get captured and Buck dies in the process. Yeah. Meanwhile, the remaining folks are crossing a river and Bonnie gets shot in the shoulder. And then Clyde manages to find yet another nearby car and off we go again. Like you say, cars are just all over the place and very easy to hotwire or just drive off in. They then find a pretty large family camped on the shore. It's a poor family and they're just here. I got the impression, I, now I could be wrong, it could just be a family, but I got the impression that it was almost like a small Hooverville, you know, like an encampment yep. of hobos. That's totally possible, yeah. They're certainly, you know, here because they can't go anywhere else, right? I mean, so CW gets out of the car and he asks for drinking water. Bonnie and Clyde are passed out in the car and CW brings the water to Bonnie. And the people start to crowd around the car and kind of, they see that they're all bloody and they're trying to figure out who are these people and they're kind of guessing who they are. And there's one guy who's clearly just fascinated. He keeps reaching out and like touching the bloody finger <laughs> of, of Clyde. And that's again, very realistic because these guys were, you know, rock stars by this time. Yeah. And so the group actually voluntarily gives them extra supplies and everything before they head off. Yeah. And it occurred to me at this point, this would have been a great opportunity to, you know, throw them a $20 bill or, you know, two $20 <laughs> bills, you know, but no, they just take the gifts and drive away. <laughs> and next we see it's night and they pull up to a house and it turns out that it's CW's family house. And his father comes out and helps him bring Bonnie and Clyde in. But he hasn't seen CW in a long time. And CW doesn't have his shirt on. And he has this huge tattoo on his chest, which was part of... We didn't talk about it, but it was dealt with earlier in the movie. Yeah, Bonnie talked him into getting it. And the father, while they're dragging Bonnie and Clyde in, he's harshly criticizing CW for getting that tattoo. Then we switch to a shot and the ranger who they humiliated earlier shows up in the sheriff's office and he wants to interview Blanche. And he said, you know, the cops realize he's the guy who had the photo taken of him. And he says he's looking to have his picture taken with them just one more time. <laughs> <laughs> At CW's house, Clyde is upset that the paper is saying he fled his dying brother. You know, when he says, look, he was already dying, et cetera. Yeah. And Clyde is in bad shape from his wound. CW's father is excited to have them there. They offer him 40 bucks. So here's a case where at least they're trying to be nice. But he turns it down, sells them to stay as long as they want. Seems to be really on their side. And then the father of CW go into the house. And immediately the father turns into a completely different person. Yeah. He starts smacking CW around, tells him he looks like trash. And he says nasty things about Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, he uh, he was the model of a gracious host when he was out on the porch, but that he was dissembling. <laughs> yep, yep. And then we see the ranger entering the cell where Blanche is, and her head and eyes are covered in bandages. She doesn't know who he is. And he talks to her sympathetically, and he says Buck must have been a good guy. Clyde must have led him astray. This is all very standard, you know, sort of interrogation techniques, yeah. right? 
And he basically tricks her into telling him the name of CW because the press never knew. They always call him the unidentified other person. And as soon as she tells him the name of CW, he just walks out of the room. But she doesn't know he's walked out of the room, so she keeps talking. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, yeah. he's even very careful to quietly shut the doors behind him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Bonnie and Clyde are in a car while it's raining outside. And it must have been a little while because now they seem to be healed up and be in pretty good shape. And Bonnie is writing a poem about them. And Clyde says he's going to send it to the newspapers. And next we see the ranger reading the poem in the paper. <laughs> and then we see Bonnie reading that same poem from the paper to Clyde. And he says he loves it. And he says it's going to make him somebody that everybody remembers. And they embrace again. He's really excited. And this time it seems like hey, this time actually goes somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He actually uh, he becomes an official lover boy. <laughs> yeah. And now we see CW's father in a cafe talking to a guy in a hat. And his father is, you know, this was a really, really white trash guy, you know, wearing, you know, T-shirts with holes in them and stuff. Mm -hmm. And now he's wearing a, you know, three-piece suit and a tie. So he, he's really dressed himself up. He's talking to some guy in a cowboy hat. And then he shakes that guy's hand and leaves the cafe. And then we see, guess what? <laughs> the guy in the cowboy hat is the ranger. Yeah, I kind of guessed it. <laughs> <laughs> and now we go to a post-coital Clyde who's insecure about his performance. But Bonnie assures him he did just perfect. Yeah, <laughs> so. she sounds enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem like she's lying, actually. Yeah. But then she hasn't had any in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and now Clyde wants to marry her to make her an honest woman. Yeah. <laughs> and Bonnie asks, and, and this is really interesting. She says, you know, if we could start all this over, what would you do differently? And I think, you know, she's wanting some romantic stuff or some marriage stuff. And he's like, well, I could, you know, we could uh, not do our robberies in the same state that we live in so that people can't find us. And he's very tactical <laughs> about how he'd improve their bank robberies. And she gets upset and turns cold. That's not the answer she was looking for. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean... I don't know what she would do instead, though. I mean, uh, yeah, she's you know, gonna go become a insurance agent or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know what a better answer would be. And obviously, she wanted all this, so you know. So then, CW's dad is in the kitchen with CW, and his dad asks if he's going into town with Bonnie and Clyde tomorrow. And he says, "Of course, I always go with them." And the dad says, "Well." I guess you got to go with them, but once they get into town, you can't come back with them. And he initially won't explain what he means, but eventually yeah. it's clear. And CW is not that much of a moron. <laughs> and the dad explains that he got CW a deal so he wouldn't have to go to jail. And the the plan is he just leaves the getaway car. He just grows yeah. up and hides somewhere. And CW says, well, you know, Clyde is not going to get caught. He has this special sense and nobody's going to catch him. And we'll see what happens. And I mean, honestly, and again, it's true to the story. I mean, there's so many times when they absolutely should have been caught and they got out of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. They had some luck, at least the way the movie presents it. Yeah. 
So in town the next day, Bonnie and Clyde are taking groceries back to the car, and Clyde is wondering where CW is. And then one of the lenses of his glasses falls out. Yeah. <laughs> so he he only has one lens. He says he'll drive with one eye, and it's and like, could this be foreshadowing? <laughs> he's wearing one of the he's wearing the round rimmed sunglasses yeah. that Blanche had been wearing. Yeah. Bonnie goes to check on CW. Meanwhile, a cop car drives up next to Clyde, but they don't actually seem to know that he's there about him. But Clyde isn't going to take any chances, so he drives to where Bonnie is and gets her in the car, and they drive off without CW, which, of course, is what CW wanted. He's looking out yeah, the window. Yeah, we see him looking out one of the windows, and uh, he looks very satisfied at them uh, driving off. <laughs> So now we have Clyde driving with his one-eyed glasses, and then Bonnie gets a pear out of the back and bites into it. And I'm like, okay, this is getting really symbolic here. <laughs> well, I don't know what a pear means, but I, I'm sure it means something. Yeah, I don't know. It could be related to the apple of Eden, I guess. Or, uh... Yeah. And then we see that CW's dad has a truck by the side of the road, and he's fixing a tire on it, and he keeps looking down the road. And this, again, is accurate to how this actually happened. So when Bonnie and Clyde approach in their car, he waves them down to help him out, and Clyde gets out. And after a bit, he suddenly dives under the truck, and Clyde isn't sure what's going on, but then he kind of crouches down and looks at the bushes. And we have to get this series of shots. There's an approaching truck, which actually turns out not to be cops or anything. It's just a couple of people. Yeah. Some birds suddenly burst out of cover from the bushes. Bonnie and Clyde look at each other, and there's like one instant where they know what's about to happen. Yeah. And then the shooting starts. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a, a famous scene in movie history, right? Mm -hmm. Because... They did, I think, more squibs than anybody had ever done. And they just, you know, they're yeah. using machine guns and they shoot these people and the car hundreds of times. <laughs> also true. The car was riddled with bullets. And also, you just think about, I mean, it's easy for us to look at a scene and just watch it. But you have to realize when you have dozens of squibs in your body, well, each of these squibs is this little explosive oh, that's yeah. been glued to your skin <laughs> with a packet of, you know, blood-like substance out of it. So when you have dozens of these going off, I mean, just imagine what that feels like. <laughs> you have all these little explosives going off on your body. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, if they don't get the shot right, we're now going to have to spend five hours, you know, redoing <laughs> all of this, Sticking right? Sticking those things to you. Oh, that makes me think of, uh, they, I mean, whatever residue is left, they'd have to take that off. Every time I, mm. I, I get any kind of exam that requires electrodes, uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm fairly hairy. So, uh, you know, it's, it can be <laughs> yeah, a little Yeah, there's lots of shaving and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so after they shot the hell out of everything, the ranger comes out of the bushes and the police follow him. And then the... People who are in that truck who were just citizens approach and the car is full of holes and it's the end of the movie. What they, what they don't show here is what happened next is hundreds of people came and surrounded the car while the bodies were still in it. Hmm. And they were taking pieces of the car and they were cutting off pieces of hair. Oh, wow. One guy tried to cut off an ear, I think. <laughs> I mean, you know, cause it was all, they all knew who these people were. Oh, it was sure. famous and they were they trying to get all their of this. Little piece of history. Yeah. It's kind of surprising they didn't end with that, but I guess they just didn't want to go there. Yeah. Um, yeah. It really ends just cold turkey. There's no like a, uh, you know, little epilogue. 
card at the end or, you know, what happened to everybody else or anything like that. I mean, uh, we don't, you know, you might get, think we might get something for what CW would happen to him. Right, right. Presumably nothing too great. But that was another interesting thing uh, about this whole, the scheme to capture Bonnie and Clyde, the way CW's dad talked it up to him. It sounded like the police were going to go after them in town. And that was why CW looked so gleeful when he saw them drive off. He thought they were mm-hmm. out of trouble now, um, but they were driving into trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so now back to our discussion with Catherine. And we are back. Hello, Catherine. <laughs> so, uh, that was an interesting film. Now, with what you were talking about when we ended there, I mean, I feel like while the portrayal, like, especially of, of Faye Dunaway may not have been period appropriate, I thought something to me that's really historically interesting about this film is that it's both portraying a time and it's much closer to a time, much, much closer than we are now, of actual poverty, right? Of, of the depression, of the dust bowl, of people you know, having a house with like two rooms in it, and maybe they have two or three sets of clothing. And it's just so far from, I mean, we think of poverty now and, and, and I don't, I don't want to be crass and I don't want to overlook things, but many people that we would consider poor now, they have a PlayStation and they have tons of clothes and they have food, you know, poverty now is a very, very different thing than it was back then. And And I think this film gives you at least a little bit of, you know, perspective or insight on that i think you know it's kind of a it's a movie that even in the even in the early 30s uh, the united states was sort of a first world country compared to you know a lot of a lot of the poverty in the world so i mean that's a that's it's relative but you, but your your point is right the poverty in the u.s in the 30s was considerably different from the the form it takes nowadays for i mean you you still have the people the homeless and you know there's there are different degrees of it but typically most people at the poverty level have had access to at least some services nowadays that may mitigate the problems or at least uh, give them some more creature comforts well this is also i mean they are working with essentially a single generation of nostalgia for this period right mm-hmm. like the time that this film comes out, people remember people remember the depression, or they they hear they've heard stories about it from their parents, and it's you know it's just far enough back to be kind of bathed in a little bit of a golden glow, even mm-hmm. though people know that it was a dark period. Um, one thing that really struck me on watching the film this week is the music is totally jarring in the in the cut you know the car chase scenes. You know, it's this, it's the, it's the little band, the twangy little oh, banjo. foggy moon breakdown in there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's Benny, Benny Hill. Like, it's got this, like, yeah, it is, kind of yakety sax. It's yakety sax. And it's, it's like, this is not a yakety sax movie. Like, it has some funny bits, but it's ultimately, like, the light, the lightness of the music. And then I thought, well that music is from that period. Like it's a very, it's a very dark period for so many people. And, and the kind of contrast with the weird forced cheeriness of the music 
maybe that actually is authentic. Maybe that is, that does somehow capture this experience, which would have been, as you say, like so much more salient or recent. I mean, this is like, like we're currently in nineties nostalgia now, right? Like this is a similar gap Mm -hmm. that we're talking Mm -hmm. about. And the, the idea that these like girls are running around with, they are thinking about going back to their low rise jeans and their little butterfly clips. It's like, okay, but the 90s had some downside, y'all. And it's like, we've forgotten those. Mm-hmm. You know, we just have kind of like a, a nostalgia feeling. So I I did, I initially thought this is a failure of like the craft of this film. Like the, the, the music is silly and they just kind of didn't, it wasn't, the music editing wasn't good. But then mm-hmm. I had a second thought, which is like, maybe this is what the depression sounded like to, <laughs> to the people remembering it at least. Oh yeah. Yeah, it could be. And I, I, I thought it worked well for me. I didn't have a problem with it, but, but as soon as you mentioned the Benny Hill, it was like, yeah, I, I can, <laughs> I can see where, where you're coming from. <laughs> well, and I, I think, uh, another element of that, of the, of the way the film progresses is it starts out with the idea that violence is, is kind of cartoonish, right? So even the very first thing where she dares him to do something with his gun and he goes into the store and robs it and comes out. And then the, the storekeeper comes out and he sort of shoots into the air and then they run off, right? So the violence is very, oh, this is fun. And then it becomes, now we're actually shooting people. <laughs> so it gets dark very quickly, but it starts in this kind of naive, you know, innocent place, right? We're just scaring somebody off, right? And I was really struck by just the, none, no other people outside of the gang seem to have any reality for these characters, right? Like they just, they just, it's almost like a lack of empathy, but I, but it's more than that. It's like someone, as you, as you said, like, this is someone's car. Like a car is like a huge asset for a family at this time or for a household Mm -hmm. at this time. And they just take these cars. They just like take, you know, a dozen cars over the course of this film. Like they ruined a dozen family's finances presumably Mm. we never they never you never see a single thought cross their mind about it except for that very first scene when she says like that's not that's not your car you know and (laughs) he's like well it is now and and it's the same with yes we have this robin hood moment at the first bank robbery when they let the man keep his keep his bill that's on the counter but you don't see any kind of sustainability or persistence about Right. This notion that they're they're trying to help someone or be a part of a broader social movement. I mean, they're clearly not. They clearly can barely conceive of the internal lives or the reality of other people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that's just sort of a failure of, the, of moral imagination as depicted in these characters, whether we're meant to sort of take them as genuine sociopaths or... Or what? I mean, mostly they just seem dumb. This is what I took away from this movie, and I keep coming back to it. Like mm-hmm. these were like low IQ humans mm-hmm. who didn't think it through, like at all. Uh, an interesting demonstration of that is when he robs the store, and the guy comes after him with the cleaver, and he's honestly confused. What? Why would that guy do that? He's not the cops or anything. I'm not against him. I was just stealing his stuff. <laughs> and he and he just has no idea why somebody would have a problem with him stealing their stuff if he didn't have a personal animosity toward them. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I don't know how real this is. They did become very popular in the press, you know, especially 
probably primarily because of those photos that got found. The movie presents it as them sending photos to the press. That's not the reality. The reality was that the cops found the photos and put them in the paper, which kind of turned out to be a mistake because that's what turned them into these folk heroes, you know, with, with Bonnie there with the, the cigar and the gun and, and all that. But also, you know, is that even though they weren't really doing the Robin Hood thing, like you said, I think people saw it as, oh, they're sticking into the government, they're sticking into the bank. And they, they do present that pretty well early on when they take over the guy's house. Uh, they don't know it, but the guy had been evicted by the bank. And it sort of right up front gives them an excuse to rob banks, right? Because the bank evicted this guy, therefore it's okay for them to rob banks because they're just sort of resetting the social contract, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the piece of that that was interesting to me, you know, we're clearly not currently in an economic moment where that logic, I think, applies. I think we might have been at one point, uh, you know, during the during the kind of the housing crisis, right? Like, you know, so 2008, maybe there was kind of a, a Bonnie and Clyde moment that could have existed. But now <laughs> a lot of that energy to me is not really pointed at banks per se, but at billionaires right and i, mm. I so i think there's this it's it's almost <laughs> the same thing it's like there's a lot of people who would like to take the billionaires money or maybe take the big corporations money mm -hmm. and they're like but we ain't got nothing against them like why are they so <laughs> mad like we just want to take it but it's you know it's not personal <laughs> and and i think you know, that felt a little bit recognizable to me. Like <laughs> there's something, there's something there that has like a little bit of an echo. And, and I don't, you know, I don't want to overstress the comparison because I think the, the politics of the reputations of billionaires in 2022 is really not the same as whatever was going on with Bonnie and Clyde. But I, you know, I, I think in some ways what you just said about running the photos might have been a mistake because they became glamorous. I mean, that's, that's interesting, right? Because that's also what I was saying earlier about this film. Like the film is not really about the substance. It's really about the glamor. It's really, <laughs> it's, it's the art mm. of it. It's the aesthetics of it. And I, you know, I do wonder maybe, maybe we're just overthinking what, what is the theory of being Bonnie and Clyde? Like, I don't know about the real historical Bonnie and Clyde, but in this movie, there is no theory of being Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. And that that wonderful scene at the end when they're in bed and she says, you know, what if we could start over? Mm. What would you do? And he says, <laughs> oh, well, I'd, I'd live in a different state from where we do the robberies. And she's like, you moron. <laughs> you, you have fully missed the point of my question. And that, you know, that's the moment. And to me, that this is that's the moment when we know they're going to die. Uh, right. 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 Like, it's not when you're like, oh, what's their way out of, like, these heists? No, it's it's the moment when we realize that he, who for better or for worse, and, like, thanks a lot, patriarchy, is basically the leader of the gang, and he actually cannot conceive of doing anything but just this until they die. <laughs> and that's going to be soon. Right, right. And, and you have that, uh, I think, a point earlier in the movie, sort of similar, where she's like, we're here. I mean, the thing we were going to do, that's what we're doing, and that's it. We're just going to keep doing that, right? And she's kind of disenchanted when she realizes there's not, like, some other plateau they're going to go to at this when point. When she realizes well, that she can't go home to mama, right? Yeah, like, or even, no I think home. Guy mentioned this in our, in our discussion, 
you know, he initially promised her being in a silk dress going into some place so that he had kind of promised another destination. And then she realizes, no, that ain't going to happen. It's just this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, the violence, obviously, is the reason for that, right? It's not really the theft. Like, we understand that the theft is what has led to the violence, of course, but each player in the Barrow Gang realizes they are doomed the first time they participate in a shooting, in a, in a real act of interpersonal violence. And, you know, the kind of dawning of the realization that that is irreversible in a way that maybe taking you know, robbing a convenience store or whatever right. is is less so, you know, happened sequentially with each of these characters. And my understanding is that at the time that this film came out, the violence itself was controversial, right? Right. And there's this question of like, is it okay if it's art? Is Are we allowed to do grisly violence if it is in the service of something kind of higher or more beautiful or whatever? And the, you know, the review at the time that appeared in The New Yorker by Pauline Kael she, I think, does this incredible analysis where she says, basically, it doesn't matter if it's art. Like, there's this, there was this temptation, and this is, you know, this is really present in the discourse at the time around obscenity, too. Like, it, maybe these boundary-pushing things are okay as long as the art is of a sufficient caliber. And she says that, you know, that's exactly wrong. And she says, too many people, including some movie reviewers, want the law to take over the job of movie criticism. Perhaps what they really want is for their own criticism to have the force of law. <laughs> and I think that's right. I think that, you know, there was this somehow this idea that if you were contributing to the canon, if you were sort of part of a higher aspirational thing, you deserve free speech or you get mm. a kind of wide mm. latitude of consideration from the law. But these people who are just out here to make vulgarity, they don't. And then it's like, well, how do we choose? And that's when you get the like the movie critic as lawman, like the movie critic right. as the Supreme Court. And and it is a kind <laughs> of it's an incredible thing when you think about it. And the fact that in The New Yorker, we have this woman who is later going to become the movie criticism royalty saying like we shouldn't want that job no one should have that job this is entirely the wrong way to think about it mm. and if we want to have a movie with people's heads being blown open and blood everywhere that's allowed and it doesn't matter if it's a good movie even though she i, th I think she does think this movie is a good movie i mean in mm. the end well and and i mean guy and i both one of our favorite films is alien or, or no actually i'm thinking um the thing Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Guy. <laughs> the thing. And guy, the thing, what is my favorite, though? <laughs> yes, exactly. The Thing famously was massively panned when it came out by the critics for being too violent. And now nobody thinks about that. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a classic film, though. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, it's interesting how those responses happen. But, it, you know, when you mention, like, oh, he gets serious for people when they actually get involved with shooting somebody, I think the movie actually also really makes that point right because the first time they really get in trouble clyde says to her look you weren't involved in the violence in this you're still okay you should go now and he gives her the opportunity to leave before she's indicted by being involved in the violence and she chooses to continue on so of course that's just one of those little branching points right yeah um, but okay so what do we make though like one reason that she stays is because he once again in that scene 
dangles it. Oh God, I'm so sorry. I just used the word dangles, but he dangles in front of her <laughs> the prospect of sex, right? Like it, it's, mm. you know, I, and I came away from this movie totally unclear on what the impotence plot was doing. Like mm-hmm. what was that about? It was it just to provide an arc to a kind of pointless violence spree? Do we have any? Un, do, I don't have any knowledge of whether that had some kind of underlying reality. It's hard to imagine how we would even know. Like it, it probably was true. And the point I also made in, our, in my walkthrough as guy is that they don't they don't put a point on this, which I think is good. But I think the implication, if you think about it, is that the bank robberies were the sex for them. I think that's right. I mean, the bank robberies are robberies are clearly providing some of the same chemicals that sex provides, right? <laughs> I mean, they're clearly adrenaline kind of high on that. it. But it's also like the, you know, the sex at the end of the movie provides kind of a redemption arc or mm. something. Like it was worthwhile or something. Mm. When I think you know, arguably a more quote unquote artistic film or maybe a more realistic one would have, would have let us kind of live in the nihilism. Like, I mean, it's, you know, like this is not generative. There's nothing here. Mm -hmm. It's, it's Mm -hmm. all pointless. And then you die like that, you know, (laughs) it would have been a very different film, the one I'm proposing. And like this film is is an interesting point. I mean, this is, this relationship is never going to create a child. It's it's never going to do anything positive, and I think that's interesting. And and you see, I mean, related to that, there's this. So normally, with it, you know, you have like the Columbine killers or whatever, and these are sort of loners and and all this. These guys are not loners, right? Almost everybody they meet, they invite them to join their gang, and they they create this gang and they create this social situation. But everybody they bring in is is going to be corrupted and killed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, CW, I guess, sort of makes it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But he's clearly, I mean, he's ruined, right? Like his father makes this big deal about the tattoo and it, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, it's like literally indelible, right? It's, it's, (laughs) you know, there's, he, he won't, he's not coming out of this unscathed. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, why, why does he get the tattoo? Bonnie likes it. Like there's a bunch of interesting things going on there, (laughs) but you know, it's it's this this idea that that Clyde Barrow is robbing banks like because he's an incel or something. Like it's not that, <laughs> right? Like that's not what's happening. So you stole my note. Like, yeah, I had a note that said he was the first incel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he's not right. Like he's so cheerful. <laughs> like there's nary an angst on that man. Yeah, he's not. Yeah. Right. That's true. He's not doing this because of that. I mean, if anything, she's the one who's turned she's, on. She's the one with the. Yeah. You know, she's the emo one. Like he. <laughs> Well, he, yeah, he, she, she. I got the blues so bad, right? I mean, she's like <laughs> depressed. He did kind of recruit her. I mean, talking about the how the everybody in the gang was sort of recruited into this life of being doomed. You know, she was the first one, and she had. I don't know that he directly misled her, but uh, as soon as they drive out of that first town, she's all over him while he's trying to drive, and uh, you know, it's it's pretty clear. From the very start, she's not getting everything that she thought she was going to be getting out of the. Deal. <laughs> she says right then, you know, you're you're quite the salesman, but you don't actually have a product. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know historically how true this part is, but we see both 
the robbers and the cops evolve each other in terms of technology, right? Mm -hmm. So they both start out very primitive, not quite know what they're doing. You know, the cops are very incompetent when they first try to capture them. But then over time, the cops are bringing in, you know, this sort of tank-like thing and, you know, they're all, you know, like, like they're escalating each other's abilities as they go along, which I thought was kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. But of course, yeah. the, the law is getting more serious about it. I mean, at first, it's just isolated little outposts where, you know, the law isn't going to be organized there, at least not, not on the level it comes to later. But Yeah, it's sort of the equivalent today of, you know, everybody was a SWAT team and yeah. all this. And, and then, you know, you, as, as Reason Magazine knows, once you have a SWAT team, you have to use them for things. <laughs> so, you know, all of a sudden, people who didn't pay a parking ticket are getting a visit by the SWAT team. <laughs> yeah. I also found myself, with respect to the kind of escalating technology, right? At the beginning, he's got his little, you know, he's just flashing the gun out of his waistband. By the end, they've got grenades, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, when that box of grenades showed up, I was like, where, what? <laughs> you know, but yeah, this is a country that it's, it's between the two great world wars, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people, like young people in this context are extremely intimately familiar with violence right. in ways mm-hmm. that we really can't comprehend now. Yeah. Yeah, Guy and I have seen that, like, you know, watching classic Doctor Who, we see these war things and stuff that just wouldn't happen now that you know the um the classic one was early on they they come across this little box and they treat it like it might be a bomb and i this is both not only a 1960s thing but also a british thing because americans never got invaded we never had bombs dropped on our soil so we've never had this experience of oh if i don't know what that box is it might be a bomb mm-hmm. Yeah, they, but yeah. we see that a lot in the in that old stuff. Yeah, yeah they had the the UXBs, the unexploded bombs that were left from you know, left from when the Nazis dropped rockets on London and so forth. Yeah, but you do you do have this feeling of like the thing that makes Bonnie and Clyde interesting isn't their quite extensive arsenal and their comfort with it, <laughs> right? Like that's the sort of normal thing. It's just specifically what they're what they're using it for. And the other thing that was so striking to me in terms of technology in this movie, and it shouldn't be, right? I mean, obviously, I am aware that our time is unusual in this respect, but they just keep disappearing. Mm. And that's totally possible. Right, right, right. I mean, right. they just get in their dumb right. little jalopy. They can't <laughs> even drive that fast. And they outrun the cops once, and then they cross a state line, and it's like, there are new people. Right. Like it could be a fresh start every time until their fame, until their names are in the newspapers, which is mm. almost no one in this context. They're not traceable and mm. they're not, they, they're not trying to be, and there's nothing, you know, they say like, we have this notion that the cops are staking out the houses of their families because that's all they could do. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Specifically because there's these copycats, right? Because we learn at the beginning that like Bonnie and Clyde are being credited with every act of <laughs> right. violence and every bank yeah. robbery. It's not even as if they could sort of track them geographically because they're everywhere as mm. far as the country is concerned. There's a really good movie from a couple of years ago. I don't know. It's Netflix. It's some streaming service called The Highwaymen. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. And it is from the point of view of the Rangers who mm. brought, brought in and ended up catching them. 
And they show that part very much where literally there were just all these cops circling around the houses of Bonnie and Clyde's family and everybody knew. And, you know, it, it, it got kind of ridiculous. It was sort of funny. One thing the movie touches on, but they don't really fully show how real it was, is that for the public, this was an ongoing dramatic story that they knew was going to end in the death of these people. And everybody was waiting for them to die. We don't, we, we, again, we get a little bit out of the movie. It's not totally there, but everybody knew it was going to happen. There was no way they were, once they had all of law enforcement in the entire country after them, they were not going to survive. I think that, you know, the, the one point in the movie early on that was amusing was the guy that they did, uh, give the money to or whatever. And then he was like, you know, I'm going to bring flowers to their funeral. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that a was great, <laughs> that was such a good little pet piece. Yeah. It's true though. I mean, you know, it's the other thing that came to my mind because of where I'm situated historically was the, the OJ chase. Mm. You know, like this, the sort of feeling of inevitability of it, the weird kind of slow-mo, the fact that it is like very covered in the press, right? Like we, you know, we all watched that in real time and that mm -hmm. sensation must have been the sen same sensation of people following the exploits of Bonnie and Clyde, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, yeah, it was, they weren't going to win. They weren't going to, like, what would winning even look like in their case? And then we, you know, we do get in the, in this film, we get a kind of Javert character, right? We get, we have like the one sheriff or whatever well, he is, ranger, who, yeah. the ranger who, you know, who's been made a fool of. And so he, he won't, you know, he won't rest until, until right. the, the Barrow gang is brought down. No idea if that reflects the underlying reality. Either. No, he, they, they didn't, uh, the actual ranger who is representing the highwaymen never met them until they killed them at the right. end. They were literally kind of brought in as consultants it was basically like we can't get these guys let's get some competent people and so a couple of rangers came in and and figured things out and ended up killing them <laughs> so, yeah but i guess the movie just didn't want an anonymous person at the end they wanted somebody who had a you know yeah. a stake and it's not a fair it, you know? complaint to be like this mm. film imposes a narrative arc on this story like of course it does <laughs> right. but there were sort of several different places where they were sort of bringing the, the film is structured to bring meaning and to sort of give motivations to the different characters. That's not at all clear to me we're there. I mean, you know, we could talk about the the found family trope, right? Which is, you know, which is which is played up in this film, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't pay off, right? I mean, in the end, CW betrays them a bit, and you know, in the end, actual family matters more, right? I mean, we have these repeated conflicts where. Bonnie correctly notes that the Clyde sister-in-law is a liability. And he's like, well, there's nothing I can do about that because he's my, you know, they're my family. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and I think CW's father is an interesting case because very successfully in the terms of the movie, he's a villain, right? He presents one face to them, but he has, but his actual feelings are completely different. And he betrays them and he goes to the cops and he keeps his son from being part of it. And so watching the movie, you're like, oh, this guy's terrible. Then <laughs> you step back, it's like, wait, this guy got the villains captured and killed and saved his son from being killed. Like he did the exact right 
thing. <laughs> but in the movie, he's a villain. <laughs> so that's pretty amusing. Yeah. He is literally the only person in this entire film who appears to be able to think strategically. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, uh, we recorded a while ago with Sarah Rose Siskin, so, you know, an um, uh, episode on Thelma and Louise. And we may have to put it before this because while we were watching this, we realized Thelma and Louise is basically a retelling of this story, which I yeah. hadn't realized. So, you know, that's pretty interesting because you have the whole same thing of them kind of escalating their violence and their journey and then ending in a uh, destruction. <laughs> so, but th- I just thought that was interesting because I hadn't realized it at all until, until watching this after we watched Thelma and Louise. Yeah, and there was a there was a previous a previous Bonnie and Clyde movie that this movie is a remake of, in which Bonnie and Clyde are portrayed as a little more blameless, right? Like you know, they're sort of driven to the first acts of violence hmm. through extremity, right? And then and then it snowballs and they but you know, but the this sort of thoughtless glee of this Bonnie and Clyde is not present in the previous the previous iteration that this was that this was remaking and i do you know i do wonder about that is you know is is the thing that the the 60s are bringing to this that sense that we don't anymore need our heroes to have understandable motivations i mean one thing that i don't love about modern villain making is that the villains all have trauma now mm-hmm. and it's like mm-hmm so maybe yeah. some people are just evil or maybe yeah, some people are just yeah when you're watching some tv show and they're like oh well the bad guy's daughter has cancer and so yeah. oh, God. <laughs> and, and that's one thing that's actually very refreshing about this about yeah. watching bonnie and clyde you know it yes bad things have happened to them but the same bad things that happened to people all around them mm-hmm. and in fact that's kind of the defining attribute of this period is like everyone is yeah. having trauma level, bad things happen to them, yeah. but they're not doing it because of that. They're just doing it because why not? <laughs> yeah. So we get to the ending. Actually, first of all, it was, uh, cause I've done a lot of deep dives into this since I first saw the film a few years ago. The ending is more accurate than I originally thought it was. Um, the whole thing of, you know, CW's father having the truck on the side of the road that was in, and that's all true. They didn't like, they have him getting, uh, Clyde getting out of the car. That didn't happen, but it's very minor. What I always think about here though, and this is the first movie that really did this, right? They got shot the hell out of, and, and that's probably the violent part that really stuck with people, right? And made people think of this Mm. because it's just hundreds and hundreds of shots, which is all completely true. That car was riddled with hundreds of bullets and they were riddled. What I think about from the actor's perspective is you've got to realize every single one of those shots is a little ball that has been taped to your body. (laughs) And so what it must feel like to have dozens of little bombs going off on your body and have to act. And they have to, you know, I don't know. It's really interesting. Of course, uh, this wasn't exceeded until like Godfather two, I think when Sonny gets killed and that was the most squibs Mm. any person had. I mean, his whole body must've just been, you know, wrapped (laughs) like a mummy in squibs. Mm -hmm. I always find that interesting. And that scene is very good. I mean, even, even in an era of much better special effects and, you know, many, you know, much more powerful editing tools, 
I did not have the feeling at the end of this film that that came across as kind of like hokey or fake mm. or um, and some of it is the awkwardness right when she falls forward out of the car and her arm kind of you know flops down she's it's not it, it's it's only beautiful in the way that like shapes are beautiful it's not mm. beautiful in the way that a model is beautiful like she yeah. looks weird mm-hmm. right. but in a you know in a way that's clearly a choice like you don't she didn't fall like that spontaneously and they were like good enough like that was choreography and it's good it still works it's i mean i have no idea what it actually looks like for someone to be riddled (laughs) by hundreds of bullets but Mm. i didn't find it implausible that it could look like that in the context of the film which which is quite impressive what i think was the interesting artistic choice is they hinted at but did not show the reality which is hundreds of people showed up so this is again getting back to the you know the slow motion <laughs> uh ride there people knew this was happening and hundreds of people showed up and they were taking pieces of their hair one of them tried to like clip off a piece of an ear or a finger the cops had to get them away i mean it was there was this bizarre thing you know very populist thing that happened of everybody wanting to get a piece because oh the story had ended and they all wanted a piece of bonnie and clyde Mm. to prove that they'd been there to you know whatever and and i it's interesting they didn't you mean you could have had that and it could have made a point or whatever and they just didn't choose to include that in the film i mean if i wanted to get kind of metaphorical about it i suppose i could say well you know what is this film's attitude toward people wanting relics or memorabilia of something this horrific because this film is that right i mean Mm. this film is bonnie's finger bone creepily (laughs) preserved right like this this film is a lock of hair from Mm. clyde that you show people when they come over for dinner (laughs) and you know we're sort of complicit in that you know we we, as viewers we are enjoying and you know there's parts where you're laughing right like this is a funny movie Mm -hmm. and some of it is played even as broadly comedic like the entire interlude with the you know um the the couple uh, the you know the courting couple and they steal the car and they get takeout and you know then we learn that she's a bit of a spinster and like there's just great details in that but it's funny it's just a funny set piece and the fact that we're sort of all chuckling along and then at the end it's like oh no this is this is a story of unspeakable horror actually (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know i i think we are the souvenir seekers right like Mm -hmm. we we are the looky-loos of this (laughs) tragedy yeah that's a good point that's uh yep well, and that, that's a good transition because I wanted to just talk through some of the actors and we thought there in the, the first side list, it was Gene Wilder. So first of all, if you're a modern viewer, Gene Wilder showing up in this film, like, what the hell is this? And his, his portrayal is kind of weird. Like, you don't quite know what's going on there, but this is actually true. They actually did kidnap a couple that, where the guy was a funeral, you know, a mortuary director. And related to what you're saying, it's just really weird because you have this whole night of them becoming friends and getting along and getting takeout together, et cetera. And then there's the one moment that offends Bonnie. And the next thing, they are just left on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere without a thought. 
I mean, luckily they weren't shot. (laughs) (laughs) But that was such a weird sort of sequence in the whole movie. And even weirder because it was basically true. Yeah. Yeah. But that's it, right? Like, it would never have occurred to me that they would be shot. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. this, the getting is not serial killers. Right. They, they, as far as they are concerned on some level, all of the violence that they do is self-defense. Like it's right. self-defense, but they're defending themselves in the middle of the bank robbery they started, you know, <laughs> but it's still right. sort of justified. Again, it gets back to this. I, I agree with you, like this really interesting kind of core moment when he's baffled at the shopkeeper fighting back, like, but why? I'm not against him, you know, at, <laughs> And he's not against them. He's not against this couple. He's not against, I mean, all, of course, all I could see was Willy Wonka. And I know that <laughs> makes me just like an uncultured boob because he has had quite an impressive acting career. But it's like, it was Willy Wonka. They kidnapped Willy Wonka. And they, you know, it happens to the best of us. But like, you never think, I never thought for a minute they're going to shoot them. I always thought, you know, they're going to, they're going to put him out on the side of the road. They're going to have some sort of comedic, but not tragic end. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, it, I think that makes them sympathetic. I mean, as as a viewer, you find that sympathetic, but also, I, you know, again, when I was saying about the telecommunications, like, it's actually super, what did they do? Like, there they are on the side of the road. This is, but, there's there no is an interesting, phone. yeah, that too, but also an interesting question of if they hadn't offended Bonnie, would they become a part of the team? Are they, they were a part basically of the team? Being invited. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, I mean, they turned out they needed a mortuary director, frankly. <laughs> yeah, Michael J. Pollard, you know, played CW, which is a pretty amazing role because he has to play this, you know, sl- slightly, just play going correctly, like slightly retarded guy, but he's he's not a non-functional and he has skills and maybe a little bit autistic or however you would think about it. Just kind of going along with the flow. But anyway, really interesting portrayal, I think, and I had a really tough one. Mm-hmm. I know, I've, I'm not sure I've seen a lot of what he's been in. Guy mentioned he's been in a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I recognized him. I, I couldn't place him at first. It turns out I recognized him from Scrooge, the old Bill Murray uh, 1980s uh, movie. And uh, I looked him up, uh, and he has a long, long list of credits uh, going back to the late, late 50s, I think. So he's been in a ton of stuff. Um, most of which I hadn't seen actually, but, uh, yeah, quite a filmography for him. We have Gene Hackman, you know, and I don't know how early he rolls. I'm not sure exactly when he got started playing his brother, Buck. We, we talked about him, but he's a pretty key one, but also again, just kind of going along, you know, with his brother and just getting sucked in even more. So Estelle Parsons, who plays Blanche, mm-hmm. where she's, you know, the wife of Gene Hackman and you know, she doesn't want any part of this, but eventually becomes part of the gang. Yeah. And gets, uh, ends up blind for trouble too. This is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Was, was something yeah. I don't think I, I mentioned this. Um, I hadn't realized that Bonnie and Clyde was anything but Bonnie and Clyde. You know, the, when mm. I see the brother and the sister-in-law join the gang and CW before them, you know, so on, uh, that all came as a surprise to me. I, I, uh, it, it's Bonnie and Clyde and Friends, which I didn't realize going into it. Well, in a way, yeah, I think Bonnie and Clyde is more of a modern framing, right? Because as, as they show it throughout the film, the press was the Barrow Gang. Mm-hmm. And so the Bonnie and Clyde thing probably came out 
afterward, right? Mm-hmm. But she's still the, you know, the pretty lead singer, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe you, <laughs> maybe you know the name of the band, but, <laughs> you know, CW wasn't about to go have a solo career after mm-hmm. this. The members of Blondie, sometimes they would wear buttons that said Blondie is a group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, you, you have this sense of specifically with regard to the CW character, you know, if they had treated him in a slightly more egalitarian manner, you can imagine that it might've ended differently for them, right? Mm. There is, there is this sort of embedded lesson in there that if you make him always be the one to carry the bags and always the one to stand watch, even at the family picnic, yeah, they're kind to him. They, they love him, but they, they don't treat him well. And in the Mm. end, he's like, Am I one of them? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Yeah, I, I don't. If, if there is any morality story anywhere in here, besides just like don't do murder, it might be something about that. I think, like your honor among thieves, it could be. Although it works imperfectly. I I interpreted uh, at the end where he just he walked off and hid in the building across the street or wherever he was. I interpreted that as. He he had such confidence in Clyde's ability that he figured, well, I'll, uh, you know, I'll get out of the way, let them slip out of the town, and uh, you know, we'll meet up with them later. That was what yeah. that was what I think. I think mm. I think that's a, I think that's a legitimate interpretation of his motivations, but I also think, you know, the fact that he's subject at all to his father's mm-hmm. plan, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he. He doesn't get in the car and maybe right. he's just confident <laughs> and he thinks it's going to go well, but he doesn't get in the car. Yeah. He, he didn't right. actually reveal it to them. So there is that. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, talking about Faye Dunaway. So we first talked about her in network, which kicked off the season of rage against the machine. Uh, Nick did that one. <laughs> so two interestingly different roles in network. She's this, you know, high powered executive, uh, calling all the shots. <laughs> uh, I guess you might be calling the shots here, but it's in a, in a more passive aggressive kind of manner. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Like who, you know, who's the boss, right? Yeah. Like there's a, there's definitely a, who's the boss question about the Barrow gang. I was interested that every now and then watching this, she would deliver a line in a way that could have come out of Diane Christensen's mouth in network. So I, I guess maybe that's just Faye Dunaway's own personality coming through. Maybe I'm not sure, but, uh, it, uh, it, it kind of surprised me. I mean, I guess every, every actor does that to some extent, you know, Bill Murray is always Bill Murray and so forth, you know, but, uh, it was, it was still surprising because I'm watching Bonnie and all of a sudden, there's this little hint of Diane coming through. It just surprised me. That's all. Not an important point. Yeah. And, you know, finally, we have Warren Beatty, who I think, even though he produced and did all this, so it's kind of an ego project, but it's hard to imagine somebody, you could see maybe Robert Redford doing it, but you need this sort of pretty boy guy who can charm people, and he's sort of right in that. And, you know, I think, in terms of film, there's that's just a special skill, right? You've either got it or you don't. And the fact that he sort of created this film but also was able to fill the role, I think, is interesting. And kind of, you know, you have to have an explanation. Like, why 
is this beautiful woman going to go with this infinite man, right? Mm -hmm. You need somebody who's got some qualities that are going to make you feel like it might have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although also, I mean, so I will say, I don't particularly find Warren Beatty, like he's not my type. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) Clyde Barrow is definitely not my type. (laughs) But I did understand this phrase that people use when they say like the camera loves him, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it is true that there are just, there's just shot after shot in this film where you're like, yeah, I might just do what he tells me. Like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I do read, and I think this is, this is definitely like a woman's reading of this film, but like, I do read why is Bonnie sticking with him? It's not because he's so attractive. It's because mm-hmm. she thinks she can solve his problems. <laughs> God help us, right? Like she keeps trying with him. She and she and she keeps being disappointed when it doesn't work. And he has been very clear with her, right? He says, you know, you can't call me a liar, at least. Like, you know, he, I'm not a lover boy. Like he's clear with her. And she's like, I'm going to choose not to take you at your own word when you tell me who and what you are. <laughs> and it's, it's a, you know, to me, that's the power of their connection, right? Like it's the thrill of the bank robberies and all that. But it's also this weird conviction that she has, which is fulfilled, you know, I think kind of dramatically unsatisfyingly, but, and it's not clear how sexually satisfyingly either, right? Like that. <laughs> The, no, she she the seemed Peloton? to be happy at the end. Did she? Did she? He's like, how was that? And she's like, you did great. And he's like, you know, I wasn't. And she's like, it's fine. You did great. Like, I, I don't know. I had a, I felt like there could have been subtext there. I wasn't sure. Cause she's, because she always looks like she has just gotten late. This is Faye Dunaway. Her hair is always like, oh my God, I just had the best sex of my life. And what her hair looks like the whole movie. And so... How can we tell? But I think, you know, I do think there's, yeah, there, there is absolutely something about him that's like very compelling in this, in this film. And, and you're right that some of the work that does is just like making it make sense. It's just like, wh- why is anyone doing anything? Because, I mean, to get to the theme of this, like, because it's not clear to me that they are raging against the machine. Mm. Like they never, there's, I mean, you know, I am a recovering objectivist and longtime fan of Ayn Rand. Mm-hmm. And so like, I don't know what to think about the characters' motivations unless there's a very long speech in which they lay them all out. <laughs> and there's So we nothing... wouldn't want to see your version of this film. No. <laughs> no, there's a reason that I am a I am a, you know, a, a journalist who writes in an argumentative style. Like I recognize <laughs> that nobody wants to see that on film. But I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with you that this film belongs in the Rage Against the Machine canon for its sort of historical and underlying story. But we never really have a, anything that even lightly resembles a manifesto from these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the closest they get, I think, is when uh, when they're giving the, the ranger a hard time and telling them, oh, why aren't you out there protecting the, the people instead of bothering? Yeah. And even that just feels like some trash that Clyde is talking. Yeah, yeah, he's just right. Like he's like, yeah, yeah. Why aren't they protecting the people? And then they kind of like all get into it, but it's not like he was sitting up thinking those thoughts until this moment, as far as we can tell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, I think I think you know her character in particular. Her motivations are spectacularly fascinatingly opaque mm. we, we love this about her character that like she's making all of these choices for why 
<laughs> and the ma- the male characters for to be for the most part, they sort of make sense in this like we like adventure and we're going to steal the money. Uh, and Blanche is along because she's like, well, I'm married to this guy. But like, yeah. why? Why is Bonnie doing it? It's very unfair. I do like Blanche. I mean, it is the definition of the long-suffering spouse, right? She's trying to support her husband. The fact that his hobby is robbing banks. <laughs> okay, any final thoughts for anyone on this movie? No, I go. Uh... I enjoyed it. It was it was fun. It was oh, one thing I don't think I, I mentioned at all. Uh, there were some scenes, and th- and this is tied in to the point we talked about earlier with the the period clothes or lack thereof, and so on. Um, there were there were parts in it where some of the things like the cars and this a lot of the signage was done very well. You know, some of the buildings they went into looked very. 30s ish, but there were also scenes where they're like out driving past places or out in the country or whatever, where where it looked very much like a 1960s movie was you know trying to be a 1930s movie. So, uh, but that's for me that was a minor flaw. Um, it was very very enjoyable overall and engrossing. An interesting effort to make these sort of anti heroes. The, the main characters, uh, it's always, not always, but often an interesting tack for a movie to take. So, uh, I, I got a kick out of it. I'd watch it again after I had a couple of years to let it cool off a little. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say my, my primary takeaway was that I, I came away just as unsure as I was when I went in about whether this movie is art. Like, I I know that it's very, very important in the kind of story of how modern cinema becomes what it is. Mm -hmm. And it clearly made a strong impression on me, even as a young person who missed all the the everything that was actually going on. But it, it also has this kind of like, it is copying some of the affectations of a sort of higher purer more artistic form of film but then slipping back into slapstick and uh, you know gore and and sometimes some imperfections just in the in the the technical side of it right like there's the editing is really good i think and and doesn't jar me even as a modern person in the way that the editing and lots of films from this era do right it just feels they sometimes feel interminable because you're like, are we really just going to watch this person walk across the room? Oh, my God, <laughs> that doesn't happen in this film. The pacing feels good, but I wanted it to be clearer somehow about what it was. You know, is mm. it is this high culture or low culture and its refusal or inability to do so, I think, is the weird source of its power. Hmm. But I, I found that I appreciated it mostly as sort of a an artifact. Hmm. And because I came into it with this prompt for this podcast, this prompt of like reading it politically or reading it kind of sociopolitically, but I came away also totally unclear on what what I was supposed to, what I was supposed to think. Hmm. I mean, (laughs) they're not mad at the bank. Like they're opportunistically mad at the bank. Yeah. They kind of pretend to be mad at the banks because that's convenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they're sort of, they're opportunistically mad at the banks because that's kind of where they end up. They're mad at like not having a 
wide and interesting slate of life choices is the best that I can come up with. Like this is her at the beginning, head against the bedstead, <laughs> just moping. And him, fresh out of jail, definitely no prospects in that period, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have any, they feel totally constrained. And so then they're like, well, we don't have to follow the rules and nothing matters. <laughs> um, and so the, th the, the, the takeaway that I came with is like, what if it's not the machine? They're not raging against the machine. They're just raging against the nothing. They're raging against <laughs> the lack of choice. Mm -hmm. And the machine is like there. So they shoot at it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good definition. So here's my final question for you, Catherine, because, you know, being the worth watching podcast, our ultimate question is, is it worth watching for a modern audience? Should people check it out? Yes. And I say that with someone who has an extremely high bar for like when someone tells me you should watch or read this thing because it was revolutionary for its time. What I hear is don't watch or read that. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> but this, I think, transcends that. I think I think you can consume it as a mood board. Right. Like you can consume it just as like an aesthetic vibe. Mm -hmm. You can consume it as an important turning point in cinema. You know, I also think for me, this was really enriched by reading some of the secondary commentary like this poly reading this Pauline Kale essay made this movie good to <laughs> me. <laughs> and of course, I'm going to say that like I'm a journalist like, oh, an, a magazine article is what made this worthwhile is a thing that an editor of a magazine is going to say. But I think at its best, that is what criticism does, right? It takes a sort of raw artifact and gives you a handhold. And mm -hmm. so, yes, it is worth watching. Thank you very much. So for anyone who wants to follow a, you know, what I'll say a mild anarchist and a reason. <laughs> mild mannered anarchist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where can they find you? They can find me on basically every single social media platform at Mangu Ward, and uh, they can find me professionally at Reason.com uh, and at Reason Magazine. So you don't have to compete for that name much. <laughs> uh, you know, fun fact, my sister is also Mangu Ward. Uh. So I do. <laughs> I do have to compete for it. Uh, okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. thank you. I've been looking forward to this for a while, so I'm very happy to, uh, to meet you, Guy, and yeah. to chat with you again. Good to meet you.
with Peter Suderman last night. So, you know, <laughs> got to pace yourself. By the way, I talked him into being on the podcast but I, uh, when we were in Nashville, but I haven't actually uh, uh, snagged him. He wants to do uh, Scanners, okay. which neither guy or I have seen, but we both remember the ads, like with the head exploding or whatever. <laughs> so, so I will. I will say, uh, I mentioned I was doing this to, to, with you to him, and he said, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it, too. I just haven't gotten around. Yeah. So he, it's on his radar. And then mm-hmm. also I was like, hey, what are your Bonnie and Clyde thoughts? And then, like, an hour later, I was like, I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we should have had him on this so Maybe. I mean, he could probably do every episode, frankly. Uh, yeah. but. You'll have that to is true. For, that is true. For some second and we and right we now. could get cocktail recommendations from him. Guy, he does a uh, he he is a cocktail expert yeah. and he does a sub stack on it. And actually, one of the things um, I did with him in Nashville was there's this like secret place you can go that has one of the world's best whiskey collections. And they oh, never publicize their address. I think and you, have you to might just... have mentioned that. Was yeah. there like one super exotic one that some guy in yeah, California yeah. blended? Or... It's called Cali Gold. And nobody knows the recipe. And all he does is he takes off-the-shelf whiskeys and mixes them together. And, you know, usually when I hear about that kind of thing, when they're like, oh, my God, this is incredible, and he wins all the awards, I'm like, yeah, this is all bullshit. So... Because of Peter's interest, the guy at this place did something he doesn't usually do. He brought some of that out because it's very, very rare. And we tried it. And it was like, oh, my God, this actually is the best whiskey I've ever tasted. Uh, 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 <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so that was a great experience. 